Hi, I'm Josh. And I'm Lindsay. And this is the Hideaway Podcast, episode 72. That's French. Well, we had a uh, busy week of show seeing. We did two two shows back to back and real circus circus shows. No, we saw three shows. Three shows. A, a Off Broadway show and two circus shows. Oh, I was just thinking the circus ones, but I guess we did see three <laughs> three shows in total. Yeah. Well, it started with the Off Broadway show. Yep, called The Wrong Man, which Wrong I man didn't know anything about, but Lindsay man. knew all about it from the creative team. I did. The, the reason I saw it was because I am obsessed with this performer. Josh has his phone on. <laughs> I'm obsessed with this performer, Joshua Henry. He was in Scottsboro Boys. He was in Carousel. He also was in a show that I saw him recently in, but I, I like cannot remember. I have to look it up. But he is just like one of those voices that is just Amazing. insane. Amazing. And no matter if the show is bad, just listening to him sing is worth the ticket price. Um, and I really was interested to see Travis Wall, who is a choreographer from So You Think You Can Dance. I really wanted to see his choreography. Um, and what and do you think? I thought the show was pretty bland. So it's a, actually a concept album by Ross Golan, who is a really accomplished now pop music writer but back in 2004 he was broke in LA and started writing these songs about basically a murder ballad but from the perspective of a guy who's wrongly convicted of a crime that he didn't commit it's just the classic like nightmare scenario where yeah you know you get framed or accused of a crime you didn't commit and you end up basically on death row right and he He's Ross Golan started playing this song called The Wrong Man at parties and people were like, what's the next song? Like, what's the next part of the story? So he just started writing the story through these songs and performing it at people's homes. And he never recorded it. And people would ask him to to do it. He's like, you know, I'm not going to record it, but I'll come to you to perform it. So he'd go like to Utah or Boston. You know, he went all over the states performing this this piece and then he now got you know famous from his pop music writing and it's partially partially got this show because alex lackamore is that his name no well so now that he's like well known he was doing the wrong man at a pub in la and the the music rights guy for universal music was there and was like oh my god this is so good and that's how he then introduced Alex Lacamoire, who is the director of Hamilton, and was like, you need to come listen to this this music. So then he played it for Alex and he was like, this is great. Let's turn it into a musical. Yes. So in that sense, there's no book writer. It's just songs mm, telling the story. Sung all the way through. Yeah. And it's my least favorite kind of musical where it's the action and what is it? The plot is sung and yes. it's told to you rather than you experiencing it as an audience. So it's explaining the um, the actions versus you being able to see them and then experiencing the feelings that those actions through give you through music. But I mean, Joshua Henry is insanely good and um, it's definitely worth it. I wasn't actually so into Travis Wells choreography, but I definitely 
Definitely enjoy well, listening I think to them singing. Another whole conversation which we'll have we'll have we'll have a choreographer on, on the podcast soon to talk about this. I mean, I but hope we have Travis Ball between, between choreographing to a pre-recorded music or like master tracks mm-hmm. versus music that's played live. Yeah, really is a very it's not a different skill, but they have totally different things you need to to right. do. And you know, some choreographers are naturally better in, at one or, or yeah. the other. But also, I mean, just like obviously, there's a tempo that the that the band is keeping and the singer is singing too. But you know, like there's some moments where it'd be like, rest, I'm a fugitive now. And there was like a, a moment, right? But if he's like, rest, rest. Um, if, there's a de- slight difference, right? Of that rest. So like, it's not like a pre-recorded track where the, 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 the dancers know exactly when it's coming. Yeah, exactly. You have to be, you know, more f- flexible with the choreography essentially. Yeah. And I think it just being in the urban dance world of a very, very, very specific timing. Yeah. It, the uh, contemporary choreos did look a little more messy, but I don't know if it felt messy just because we're so used to watching such precise movement versus more fluid. So, but I, I mean, I would. But I'd say the the lack of dance technique was for sure made up by the vocal technique. Oh, how God. amazing the band was! Like, I will really give it to uh, the. It's not who's who's the other person from Hamilton? Thomas Kale, the the music orchestrator. The band sounded amazing. It and did. Compared to how the recording of the album sounds, which you can like find on Spotify, versus how it sounded live, like the, the I mean, it just sounded so good. Yeah, and I guess that actually leads us into an interesting article that the New York Times released, like last week. Is Pat, yeah, like yeah, last week maybe about audience participation with etiquette. their phones and etiquette. Well, you know, I guess the question is, what is okay to do when you're seeing a show? Starting there, you know, like are you <laughs> supposed to sit in silence? Are you supposed to talk? Are you supposed to acknowledge that the people are acting or not that they're acting, that you're there in the moment? You know, if it's a play, obviously you're, you're all pretending that they're themselves. <laughs> if it's a circus show, typically one that's a classical style circus show, there's no fourth, you're seeing the things, so you're mm-hmm. clapping for the individual, they're not acting. Um, and what what the rules are of any particular space. And the reason it's connected to the wrong man is because the top of this article is a video of Joshua Henry while he's singing a song in the wrong man, walking up to an audience member, pointing at them while the audience member is recording with their cell phone and grabbing it out of their hand and throwing it sort of gently under the bleachers and doing it like without skipping a beat in the Mm -hmm. music. It's an interesting clip because, you know, you hear much more dramatic stories of like Broadway performers being Well, Patti Lapone stopped the show in like 2015 or 16. She was in a Broadway play or musical, stopped the show completely to call out the person and totally broke character, totally came out of it and made it a big moment. Whereas Joshua Henry stayed in character, just kind of. But, you know, it's it's very the part of it is just how people don't underestimate how distracting it is for performers and using our own work for this example beyond Babel has a really sad moment in it and right at that sad moment someone's cell phone went off yeah and you know it ruined the moment for the performer but it happened to be one of the best shows that i had seen of that show so i went backstage and i was like oh my god you guys nailed it that was one of the best shows i've ever seen and the performers were all like oh the cell phone went off like at that moment and it took them all out of enjoying that night's performance i know and you know i saw brian cranston in a play this past season and he has about a 10 minute monologue at the end of the play mental breakdown complete utter mental breakdown in the play and it's a like a crazy experience to watch and he definitely has to be in a very specific place mentally to get to that like emotional yeah state and someone's 
cell phone went off and like people started talking and it, you know, and he stayed in it and he didn't like say anything, but it does affect him and it affects the rest of the audience too. Cause it takes you out of that moment. What I think is interesting about this article is it, it talks about, is it elitist or like snobbish to want the rules to be there to be angry people who don't follow the rules. I just think it's like and polite. It's polite, but I think the thing is, every it's purposefully gray because mm-hmm. things are different. Seeing a show at Lincoln Center is yeah. different from seeing it outdoors or in an off-Broadway theater or in an arena. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the rules change depending on where the venue is. Well, now, and, and then Madonna the and Rihanna had concerts in New York. Well, Madonna had a concert at BAM, which she started two hours late every single night. I also just talked to someone today who went to see it and they were like, yeah, she started two hours late. So it's just, it's pretty consistently two hours late. She goes on at 11 when she's supposed to go on at eight or nine. Um, and, and then Rihanna had a fashion show at mass at Barclays and they both lock, had every single person lock up their phone, and now they're doing it freestyle Love Supreme. Pouches. They're yeah. like little pouches you put your phone in, and then they close them and they're locked. And then, like, you know those tags on clothing at stores? It's kind of like that. you got to put it on a little metal thing, me- me- I don't know, magnet, and yeah. then all of a sudden it releases your phone, and that won't happen until you leave the theater. I mean, I think it's extreme because we do live in a, in an age of technology. Yes. And frankly, like, having photos out there of the show – sells tickets so i think it's like kind of a catch-22 like they're annoying i do kind of like it though because it really does enforce the mystery of live and i am sympathetic most to this argument to stand-up comedians who have to Mm. like work on their material and say things that are edgy yeah and then having that leaked potentially before they get to actually say it's finished and release it themselves that i see the thing but if it's a circus show and if it's a play or a musical Almost better just let people have it I and know. see it and talk about it and share their love for it. I mean, know? I think it's a good thing to ask people to turn off their phones, turn them on silent, because a phone ringing to me is different than someone taking a photo. Yeah. And, well, also still taking a photo annoys the person next it's to true. you. It's true. It does because it's, it's so bright. They're looking at the show through your screen. Yeah. I think I read in the article there was one show that was like, oh, maybe it was the um, the Bruce Springsteen show or Neil... Uh, one of those. Yeah, Dave Chappelle just did it on Where they said, even though, but they said, we're going to hold the curtain call longer so you have time to take a photo of him and the Mm. cast. And then that encouraged people to to do it. And you know what we did with Beyond Babel, I think really did work because they're like, you can take boomerangs if you want. And people would do it at the very top of the show. And then they'd get into the show and forget because they already got their fix of like, taking the photo or the show, you know, the boomerang. And, um, it's almost like people are so addicted to needing that photo and they're, that's all they're thinking about. So if you allow it at the beginning in some way, I think maybe it takes out the like, Oh my God, when am I going to get this photo? Or like our other show that's in Vegas, Misbehave, you literally have to use your phone in the show. You don't have to, but many people do use their phone in an interactive way with the show. Uh, Which obviously doesn't work for everything. And, you know, I don't know. I just think there's just a fine line. But also... Okay, so here's the question. What is your opinion on using phones if you are on a European cruise ship and you're seeing this with <laughs> Oh my God, guys. We, <laughs> this actually, this actually scenario happened to us. We were invited. It was an interesting experience, I would say. Um, so because we have cool friends, Tommy and Victor, we were invited by Cirque 
to come see their Cirque du Soleil. Sorry, Cirque du Soleil. We were invited to come see their U.S. premiere of their ship show, their Cirque at Sea show, Sonar. And on a new MSC They really did boat. in like the email, like come, like here's how you get your tickets stuff. Really made it sound like we we're going to this premiere of <laughs> yes. Cirque's next best thing. Yeah. Turns out. It's like two years two old. two years old and it's just the first time it's in North America. <laughs> and it's the first time this boat, this boat um, line is ever in the U.S. So it was a big deal for them. And it was the first time this Cirque show was in the U.S. So it was a big deal for them. Um, Anyways, we go in. We go into the... First of all, it's a pain to get on the cruise ship. It because is. Because the cruise ship's still like with people cruising on it. So we had to go through like... <laughs> like all these European people. Tourists. You know, make <laughs> yeah. our way to them. The boat was pretty cool though. And we get into this theater and it's a $20 million theater that probably seats tops 300 people. Yeah. Um, and the seats all kind of swivel like I don't know how else to say it. They're like cocktail lounge like cocktail chairs. Cocktail lounge seats that can swivel with. And they move. They're not, you know, bolted into the, the ground. And there's a sort of circular stage in the center, typical Cirque du Soleil size, maybe a little bit smaller. So this, the show is in the round and then uh, where the band might usually be or the, the far side of the stage is a massive television uh, wrap around mm. the back of the theater. Yeah, the show is very bright. It was like everyone was backlit, so it was really hard as like an audience member to watch it because your eyes were straining because yes. it was so bright. Also, I think the name Sonar m- means to me like sound, like how dolphins can echolocation and they kind of started with those like kind of sonar, sonar. and it had like these little like doot, 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 doot. and it and then it all of a sudden turned into like what i would imagine et times structure soleil being where it's like the stairs come down and it's like this alien and he's like twitching and he's like kind of a dancer so he has like kind of contemporary moves and then i just totally lost the plot oh yeah well circuit plots are very hard to understand in the first place yeah but i think you know, they put so much money, $20 million into this theater, and you could see All the at least yeah. $10 million of it, $15 million <laughs> of it, for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the complex level of automation and the ceiling on the stage, the uh, they had this, like Lindsay sort of mentioned, this these stairs. That, so this big TV screen behind unfolds and creates a staircase, and in the staircase are LED lights as well, and all of it's choreographed to the music and the lights. And also the... The, the music in the room is mapped really, really well. Like, mm-hmm. they can probably, they can basically have speakers everywhere. They're not as good as Cirque du Soleil in Vegas, where the speakers are literally in each individual seat, mm-hmm. but they can really isolate the room. So it sounded great. The lighting technology was very impressive, even if it was very bright. Automation was nuts. But the show kind of felt like an afterthought. It did. And the stage spun too. And it was like, they had all these cool tech pieces, which, you know, after talking to Daniel Amar on last, week's podcast it makes sense that they're so focused on tech but it really feels like they're so focused on tech at the at the mercy of the show i wonder if it's tpg who's pushing this tech direction it's very weird you know well they just did like this past week uh an article with 
Engadget, which is a right. tech website about all the tech stuff that Cirque is doing and how yeah. much they're leaning into Maybe it. Maybe they think that that's like, I don't know, a pull, but it, but because there's so much tech, it's not even used smartly in the show. Like I could have, I mean, obviously like I could have thought a million things better, but like, I was like, what? You could have used like the stairs cooler. Like when he swung out a little bit, like that could have been a thing in this turning stage. And I mean, they had all these elements that they just, it felt like they didn't really use. They used it once. I think I would say the, I loved all their elements. They just didn't use them in a way that made it any more right. than an effect. Like the best stuff in theater is when the effect right. matches the narrative moment and just in such a way where it makes you feel something as opposed to just look cool. Well, I feel like with Luzia, like yeah. they use like, that stage really well. For sure. And the tra- like, that's an example of using all the tech in a beautiful Beautifully. way. The rain, like it doesn't feel, um, you know indulgent it feels like a part of the show and even like um ka you know that is like a technological feat but that's old you know that's like an old show and that's like amazing technology that feels rightfully used versus now it's just like look at all this cool tech we have and all these led lights and like this you know weird curtain though like i do i do see why it, it creates like a trench for yeah. them or like a moat. It's like a business term. Like what makes it hard to compete against you? Yeah. It's like, cause we have these like built in skills and the skill is like, we know how to spend $20 million and create <laughs> nuts moving stages. Like a stages bad, and a bad and show. Crazy lights and sound. Yeah. Well, that's why Guy's, maybe Guy's new project is literally, it's a just trying tech. their tank, tent with just tech. So maybe this is a direction things are going. The thing though that I love more than anything, I do love all that cool tech stuff is the humans doing insane things in circus and or dance or mm-hmm. or singing like sonar did have though was some cheerleaders yeah that was cool Great they to were see good that in yeah the show. just proves that cheerleading works as it was act. like hand-to-hand but two but two you know, big dudes yeah and little 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 they girls should do that with 12 people on stage i know it's like, like why they had pairs, a cheerleading like team of two. yeah or not even a team but just do guys and girls yeah and do, but what was cool is how they would sync it so like one person would flip up and then the other person would flip yeah up. it was cool and you know the, the tricks definitely look different than like traditional hand and obviously they're wearing sneakers yeah. but just like the ability for like the big dude on the bottom to literally throw her up with one hand and just catch her with both feet in one arm hand was a cool look but yeah and the ship was cool <laughs> yeah the ship was cool i would totally, it seemed fun uh, if, if you're in the a... older category of, of ship cruisers yes very it very pretty did seem like a really fun MSC. ball msc they have two circ shows mm-hmm. so we didn't see the other one no but um if you're a circus fan hey maybe that's a that's an appeal yeah, and there was a beatboxer it was pretty good yeah the beatboxer was pretty good and then on the entirely other end of like low i mean actually the show had some tech but low tech we also saw the new uh well the premiere of the world um sorry Spit we also saw the new show the new-ish show yeah. by seven fingers called passengers or passage passage passenger passenger i don't know, I don't know. i'll have to have shana say it yes passengers directed by shana carroll who's our guest today i feel like shana and gypsy are the two most like you don't know it but like they choreographed so many of like your favorite shows and i'd say seb as well shana's husband they're all part of the original seven fingers and they've worked on various different projects that are their own seven finger mm-hmm. show they've worked on pippin they've worked on the winter olympics they've done loads of cool things and you know shana's also like gypsy who was a previous guest an american who 
ended up moving to Canada in order to pursue circus mm-hmm. and started basically the, the most relevant contemporary circus company in yeah. North America. But yeah, it was just a beautiful show. It was my parents' first time ever seeing a yeah, Seven Fingers show. I had no show. idea what your parents would think because yeah. they seen some weird circus shows with us. Like we've taken them to Absinthe and Blanc de Blanc and we've taken <laughs> and them to Cirque du Soleil like and Smirkus and they've seen Big Apple and mm-hmm. Clyde Beatty. So they've seen a good amount of circuses and they loved it. Loved it. Loved I mean, it. they were just blown away. But I do feel like that's, you, you know, whenever you see your, your first Seven Fingers show... You're like, oh my yeah. god! I mean, I think my first Seven Fingers show was the was the one in the round at the Tohu, and Raf oh, Raf yeah. Cruz was in it. Yeah. So that was my first experience. He Raf Cruz passed away. I think like a, over a year ago, maybe yes. two years ago. And the show is dedicated, yeah, to his memory. And a lot of the music is based on you know stuff he wrote. So I think it's like a special show, which I'm sure we'll talk about in the interview. But really cool for my parents to see it. And if you're in Boston, go check it out. It's very good. And the and the Emerson. Theater is like beautiful. Yes. I think if you use code SMIRKUS25 at checkout, that gets some portion of the ticket. I don't know. I tried it and it didn't. Maybe it worked. Hopefully it worked. Yeah, maybe maybe it's delayed. (laughs) Hopefully it worked. Well, before we get to our interview, of course, we have to talk about our faves over at Circus Talk. Yes, Circus Talk, the circus community's online employment and sort of news tool. I mean, news is really my favorite aspect to it, but they also post jobs. Uh, there were two particularly interesting jobs this week. One that I would say would be my childhood dream job, which is the <laughs> a teeterboard flyer for Cirque du Soleil's Cusa, which is a great show. Yeah, you know, get launched off a seesaw. Yeah, if that's your thing, they're applying for that. <laughs> and Sanka, which is a uh, circus school nonprofit in Seattle, is looking for an executive director. That's the kind of thing that suits you. Go check that out on their website. If only we wanted to move to Seattle. If you're not ready for a job, but you are a student particularly one living in the Midwest, Aloft, which is Chicago's circus school, is now taking applicants for their, I believe it's their professional program. Uh, they only take applicants every two years. I think it's going to be open for another month or so, so go check out their website. Also, if you're an international traveler, a festival coming up called Cirque Ausch, or the Ausch Festival. I don't personally know too much about it, but we have Catherine Kavanaugh coming on in a couple weeks to recap Edinburgh and this circus festival. It's really like two main places to see contemporary circus in, in France. And finally, if you want to go on there and check out their news section, I read this very cool article about uh, circus in Ethiopia. There's a whole video produced by CNN where they go and they, they see how social circus and community circus is impacting the lives of so many people in this part of Africa that you probably wouldn't otherwise hear about. Those all sound very interesting. And to read more about all of those topics, jobs, events, and news, you can go to circustalk.com and read all about it. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, rate us on iTunes. Those two things are really helpful. Uh, Twitter, tweet us. Instagram, follow us. And get tickets to our show in New York. We're coming up. We have Beyond Babble. It's our baby. We talk about it all the time. Tickets are on sale. BeyondBabbleShow.com. Performance is starting in January. It's so crazy. And of course, the other show... Our other baby is Miss Babe Game Show, still playing in Las Vegas Lizzie's at Bally's. Like, you can't say you love one child more than the other. <laughs> no, they're so, I mean they couldn't be more different. If you go it. see Miss Babe and then you come see Beyond Babel, you're gonna be like, wow, it's like a crazy different show. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's good, you know. Yeah. We like it some variety. It is. Here's our interview with Shayna. 
Where are you from originally, Shannon? Uh, I'm originally from Berkeley, California. Um, I, yes, I grew up in Berkeley. And then I joined San Francisco's Pickle Family Circus at 18 years old. So Were you into circuses like a little kid? I was not at all into circuses as a little kid. Um, I think, I mean, first of all, I remember seeing when I was four or something, you know, being taken to, you know, Ringling Brothers and at the at the you know the big coliseum in oakland and you know being miles and miles away and really i think you know first of all when you're at that age you don't everything's a trick anyway yeah. um you know the you know you don't know how the cartoons go in your tv or whatever so the appreciation of someone like you know hanging by one foot you know 30 feet in the air you're like i'm sure there's it's, <laughs> there's some trick to it i don't know what it is but so i think you don't really have that sense of you know actual feats um and and i you know whatever just the whole uh, genre and aesthetic. I mean, even as a kid, it wasn't something that appealed to me. And then I was very seriously into theater, actually, um, and did uh, you know just you know summer with Shakespeare, you know just all those things. And then actually, was there a even, player musical that you were really into at the time? Well, I did many in school. My first, I, I played Sandy in Greece when oh, I classic. was, I know, I was twelve. I think oh, it was, my, oh, wow. it was junior high. I mean, junior high. Right? Did you do living. the junior, the junior version of Greece, or was it like the adult version? I think it was the adult version. And it's I remember it's really crazy. And then I, I mean, I think we edited a few little words here and there. Um, but it was nineteen eighty three. And, uh, and I remember, like, my parents came and they all kind of had a discussion after, like, we're not so sure about the message of the show and the appropriateness, you know, but 70s and 80s, I mean, the, the, you right. didn't cater things to children pretty much. Right. We just had to kind of, you know, tread water in the in the in the grown up world. But um, so, yeah, so I did I did lots of plays and I even was directing plays um, like in my last year in high school uh, through a special program and stuff. So I was really kind of down that track. Um and then I think it was a combination of when I when I graduated, I wanted to first kind of work. I think I even thought, oh, I'll go to college later. But I was in I was really um, I was teaching at the drama studio that I had been to previously and, and directing a little bit like semi-professionally. Um, there was an agency. I was kind of trying. I thought, oh, OK, I'm 18. And, you know, there's this thing about when you're a when you're a quote unquote child actor that as soon as you turn 18, you're not, you know, you're you're legal, but you still look young. So yeah. it's this yep. prime time and I had an agent, <laughs> yeah. all this stuff. Um so I moved into an apartment in the city thinking, you know, this I was going to kind of get my career going. And then actually pretty quickly got kind of disillusioned, I think. You know, it's a big jump from loving theater to then like going to audition for a vacuum cleaner commercial. For and, sure. you know, so that was sort of just the whole, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm sure people have said much about it, but that whole world, I was kind of not so into it. The drama studio I was working for went bankrupt. And so then I didn't have that. And I and my father was so my father is a columnist in, in San Francisco was for you know gosh I want to say 40 years or something um and he actually was always involved with the Pickle Family Circus um I say always but he did a, he did a column on them and then uh through the column kind of you know developed a friendship they approached him to write their 10th anniversary book which we have on our shelf which you oh okay we wonderful do, so do. you have my father's <laughs> book so um and then he just fell in love with the company and was constantly encouraging me to you know come check it out and get involved and that was because I was like no dad I don't like circus that's not my thing yeah. um but then at that point when I was 18 and kind of like trying to have a day job he said well look why don't you at least you know if you work in the pickles and at least you learn about arts administration and nonprofit and it's better you know, at least it's arts oriented and yeah. it's better than working in a clothing store, which I was. Um, so I started, I got an office job at the Pickles and then it was just instant um, that I fell in love with it. And I think it's funny because I always kind of connect this to basically what I do now. But um, 
I think the fact that, you know, they were in an old church, their, their studios, and it was, you know, the offices were kind of created like loft area in this, you know, one church space. So you'd walk in and you'd watch training and then you'd take a left and go to your desk. Um, and something about seeing the circus close up with people in, you know, sweatpants and hair down and being five feet from it and really getting like, okay, this, like what I was saying, this is really a woman hanging from one foot. Right. <laughs> um, and that, like that packaging of that lens just suddenly kind of awoke me to this sort of like, oh my, you know, the beauty of it, the, the metaphor of it, um, the risk and kind of feeling something adrenaline wise I'd never felt. So I think that back to, I guess, present day, that's always been the sort of guiding thing that now, like when I then became a creator, like wanting people to, to have that lens, like to go mm-hmm. back to seeing circus, like the way I did when I was 18 to like, oh my God, that could be me. That mm-hmm. could be my, my neighbor, my best friend, my, you know, so, and then you have an emotional attachment to it. So then you're more invested when, when there is the risk taking and, I kind of answered that question, that no, one question. question. I just went well, I kept going with it. It's, it's funny because my background is really theater, too. Uh-huh, right. And I started doing theater and going to see circus, but never was really into it until I met Josh at grad school. And I was like, he's really cute. I want to go see any circus you bring me to. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, such a different feeling that you get from circus than you do theater. Right. You know, because the right, risk right, is yeah. real. It's real, right? It's real. Versus yeah. theater is all pretend. And, yeah. And I, But one thing I talk about a lot is the difference of like confidence I think of being an actor in theater you always feel like I don't know self-conscious or not mm-hmm. like insecure because everyone can sing and you know uh-huh, it's, uh-huh. versus circus you're like I can do these tricks right like, I right, feel confident right. in that yeah there's the quantitative element in yeah, it where it's yeah. sort of yeah it's I see what you mean I think that, I know that actors often talk about the insecurity of Ultimately, it's just you like who is being accepted and rejected and loved or not loved. It's your being because the rest of it, you know, but I think that's no matter what, when you're on stage, there's that to some extent. But there's the quantitative side with circus. Mm -hmm. Like if you're the one doing the triple twist or doing, the, you know, like you've you've trained something and and learned it. And also because that takes so much dedication and courage and everything that takes up a lot more of your brain space Mm -hmm. than worrying about, you know, you know, exactly. So I think that. It becomes, I mean, becomes a rewarding mm-hmm. um, line of work in that sense because because of the sense of like working really hard to learning to learn something and then right, you see it, yeah, exactly. Seeing right. them. So when you were eighteen yeah. and watching all this, was that mm-hmm. the moment where you're like, I actually want to try? To oh yeah, it was certain- instant. And I, yeah. I mean, I think there's also something about that age where you're really, you know, you're sort of looking for a compass in some <laughs> ways. Um, and I don't, I mean, I do think there was something very, you know, aha-y as people say, <laughs> but, um, but it was, it was the timing as well. And I think that also, I mean, what I've also come to learn is the, the sense of community that, that circus brings and something about joining that family at that moment and this idea, you know, going on tour. And I mean, it is a little bit the cliche of running away and doing circus, which of course I hate that cliche. <laughs> and it's like, you know, when, when you've been doing circus for 35 years, like how many times someone have to tell you that? But it, it's true that there's this sense of, you know, of, of climbing on, climbing on board a train. Um, so, yeah, so, so it was instant. I mean, it was particularly Trebise. There was um, Sky DeSella, who I don't know if you know the DeSella sisters who were at, at the Pickles. There was four of them and three. One was a singer, Lassa, who actually, she, she actually passed away um, from breast cancer when she was fairly young. So that's a whole whole other story. But the three, Aine and Sky and Miriam were, um, were at Pickles and I performed with them. And Sky was the trapeze artist and she was the one, like I said, she was my age. 
she, I mean, I don't think we necessarily looked alike, but there was something, you know, I don't know. She, uh, there was this sense of like, you know, um, recognition when I saw her on the trapeze and, uh, and, and it was so poetic. And I think that was the thing is that I'm not really, I was never athletic. I was never into sports other than, you know, watching it with my dad. Cause that was a bonding experience with my dad. But, um, so like, I couldn't touch my toes. I couldn't, you know, do a pull up, anything like that. And so it wasn't the trick side that ever drew me to circus. It was sort of the poetry and the artistry and the storytelling actually. Mm-hmm. And there was something about the fact that that was happening physically. And instead of like, we we're saying, instead of in like in theater, the metaphorical mm-hmm. flight or risk taking, it was the literal flight, um, that just seemed so much more powerful and beautiful. So it became instant that I was, I just told everyone I'm going to be a trapeze artist, which of course, again, Again, like, you know, it's the kind of thing who, you know, you have to be 18 of the balls to just say, I'm going to be But also I think there was something I was, I feel fortunate that it was a time when, I mean, circus was still so like, in a way, marginalized. Um, and there was no YouTube, et cetera. So I really was in this bubble of just the people I knew at the Pickles, you know, the one trapeze artist I'd seen, you know, there were some photos from, you know, other famous trapeze artists, but she left, Sky left to go to the school in France to Chalon. And, uh, and I wanted to train trapeze and I would go, you know, they, they were my friends now, the, the fellow cast members, and I'd go to the church and, and train and everyone would just kind of walk by like, oh yeah, I think there's a trick if you put your hand here. <laughs> and, and then I would just make things up as well um which also I also appreciate now because I feel like it gave me like sort of the sense of ownership where I would you know I'd make the ropes twist and I thought I was the first person who had ever done that and and it kind of instantly I had a creative approach because I had no choice Mm -hmm. instead of like learning you know learning what everyone learns then you have to try to individuate which is harder than just from the beginning that's your only choice so Mm -hmm. um so so I auditioned as an apprentice um, which was which was actually a wonderful program. The Pickles had an apprentice program that you didn't need any qualifications. Other, I mean, you had to audition and be accepted. But I did a monologue for my audition because um, it was fairly theatrical. Like yeah. the second half, they had the you know the second half of their show was sort of a play. It was a cafe scene. And everyone had a character, and then obviously you know the Bill Irwin and his spaghetti. Um, that was just Bill Irwin had left like the previous year, so I just missed Bill Irwin in terms of actually working with him. Jeff Hoyle actually was our director of that piece. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, I was I was a can can girl and then and then I replaced the aerialist by the end of the year and I was yeah. the, the ingenue. And but so it was all interesting very, that they yeah. had the talking because, you know, in some well, it wasn't actually shows, speaking. Oh, it wasn't it was speaking. physical theater. Oh. But we had like a Commedia dell'arte coach and, okay. and melodrama. You know, it was uh-huh. very um, pantomime. Um, but, you know, there was that there was the villain and the ingenue. Mm-hmm. And, the, and so we had all of these physical theater classes, which. You know, even I had I had also done some physical theater in my in my theater uh, yes, yes, studying. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and I actually really I really enjoyed that. And I say I wasn't physical. The one thing I did was tap dance. Nice. <laughs> so, so I mean, I wasn't I wasn't completely not physical. And as a kid, I'd done like you know basic gymnastics, so I could do a cartwheel and everything. Um, but I mean, it was it's really addicting as soon as you start. Also, I'd never I mean, this is before any kind of like fitness craze and not many people like unless you were in a sport like playing volleyball or something, no one really just worked out back in the 80s. So um, I mean, it's just 
I guess there were a few people who did. I mean, it's not very. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not fat. I haven't fact checked this, but as far as I knew, it was really not a thing. So even just the the rush, the whole endorphin thing of doing a physical activity that you know I just hadn't experienced. So maybe now in retrospect, I'm not sure how much of it was just falling in love with circus and how much of it was like using my body, which I hadn't done, and just that like I was saying, the addictive quality of of not just the the working out part of it, but um, you know, like I say, learning a trick and challenging yourself and mm-hmm. and. And like I actually talk about often the whole the element of risk taking that becomes so contagious in your brain where you prove to yourself, you know, you, you go up high and you do this right. trick and you're scared and you get you get over the fear. And then it just it completely contaminates in a good way the yeah. rest of your brain and life. What and is you that like? More, like to me, yeah. I'm like when I see someone, you know, be like pulled up on an apparatus like trapeze, let's say. And then you're up there and you're doing this trick. What is your, like, what is it with your brain that's going on? Are you, like, just so confident Mm. that you can nail the trick so you're not scared? Or is it, like, do you forget that you're that high? Do you forget... I would say for the most part, it's funny because I think it's it's not always the same. Um, There are moments when the fear is way more present at the front of your brain. And, in fact, because also... It physio- physiologically mm-hmm. will alter your sense of timing. And so there's there's ways in which fear is actually dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember noticing I as an as an actress, I mean, even though I was a, like I said, I was a teenage, you know, high school student actress. But still, I remember doing plays and like the adrenaline, like right. gave you this electricity. And I kind of liked that feeling of You're like, still, like in tune with the audience. Yeah, the little yeah. bit of stage fright that actually just made you really present. And then I remember the first time I had to perform a trapeze act and I had that same energy. And then everything, you know, everything was off. And I realized like, no, 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 no. This is this is actually really dangerous because right. you're you, there's a quickening that happens. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't feel your muscles similarly. I mean, you do. You are strong which is good for some tricks but um and so I actually developed a thing where I call going into crocodile mode where you know I guess crocodiles like bring their heart rates down when they're I mean I I think when they're (laughs) when they're underwater um and I just would notice that that was happening Mm. and I would just really just go and try to you know control that so I could then control my body and not get thrown off particularly when I was swinging where your sense of timing is thrown off by adrenaline. And if your timing is thrown off, then your trick, you know, you're going to be, you know, projected in the wrong direction and miss your trick. And so you really have to kind of override it. There are other times, actually, I mean, I do remember moments where, like, I kind of felt like, I'm not that high or I don't feel fearful today, you know. So, like I said, it's not sort of consistent. Um, I think for the most part, I felt the fear, though. Um, And I know it's different for different people, but um, I think maybe because I didn't come into it in, you know, I wasn't a thrill seeker and I wasn't an athlete. I was like, I liked the artistry. So it was sort of like the risk taking was like, ugh, it was something I had to force myself to do, you know, and yet I also loved it. So, so yeah. how did you pursue performing professionally after the pickles? Mm. So, so I spent a year as an apprentice and then trained myself on the trapeze. And I, you know, I have a story about, um, while we're touring, cause we tour outdoors, we toured outdoors. Um, so I would hang the uh, practice trapeze on the boom of the bleacher truck and basically just train on it till the sun went down. And then by the end of that year, because I'd been training myself, I auditioned to be the trapeze artist for pickles. So then I spent another year and a half as the trapeze artist and not just an apprentice. Um, and then it was really interesting because I think when I, when I first fell in love with the pickles, my goal pretty much was just to be in the pickles mm-hmm. and to be a trapeze artist. And even then I didn't, I kind of didn't think it was going to last that long. And especially because many people told me it wasn't going to last that long. So it was sort of like, okay, I'm going to enjoy this while I can and, you know, do this crazy thing. But then after two years of being a trapeze artist, um, you want to 
be a better trapeze artist. You know, suddenly that became my goal. And, you know, I'd been at Pickles and that was wonderful, but I sort of wanted to increase my technique. You know, at that point I'd heard about the school in Montreal. There was Andre Simar, who was later who became my coach. And at that moment was kind of revolutionizing swinging trapeze Mm -hmm. in terms of technique and also equipment. And people were doing tricks no one had done. And Nouvelle Experience, the Cirque du Soleil show came and toured. We're talking 1990 in San Francisco. And there was Anne Lepage, who was a swinging trapeze artist. Oh my God, if I could just do that trick. So for a long time, I would talk about, I want to go to Montreal for like six months and get some tricks and then come back to pickles, you know, (laughs) really. Um, But, you know, kind of that little bit of, I mean, I guess it's ambition, but it's, it was almost just the excitement of learning new tricks. I mean, really on a very basic level of like kind of this door was opening where I had, I had, um, it was already so impossible to imagine I was even going to be a trapeze artist. But then at one point I was, and I kind of kept improving. So then suddenly it's like, well, maybe it's also possible that I could go into that category. And um, so I visited, again, the, the DeSellas, the same sisters I was talking about. Ayn and Miriam moved to, and Sky moved to go to the school in Montreal. And I visited them while I was on tour with Pickles, spoke to Andre and thought, okay, you know, this is great. It's like Hogwarts when you go there. It's really like, does this really exist a place where you just come and... But it's not like the school is now. It was in a different building. It was in a different building. It was at the old port. It's where El Waz is now. Um, And it was an old train station. I mean, I love their new building in that it's, you know, it's Mm -hmm. built for their needs, which is fantastic, but it has the feel of a new building. Um, The the Gare d'Alousie, which was their first building, was an old train station and had, you know, these brick walls and, I mean, well, stone walls and really had a soul to it Mm -hmm. in a way that um, was part of the experience Mm -hmm. of walking in there. It was back when Cirque du Soleil didn't have any training headquarters, so they'd often just train at the school. So, in fact, when I went and visited the casting director for Cirque was also hanging out there and they were training another act and everything. It was all kind of one little, little, very little world at the time. Um, and, and even then I wanted to maybe finish my season. And then all of a sudden, uh, a <laughs> series of events happened over the summer, both on a personal level and in terms of stuff that was happening with pickles where, you know, I suddenly said, you know what, I think now's the time. And so Miriam, one of the sisters, um, who was the youngest, so it was like 13, I think, and had gone to school, to the circus school with I mean, with her sisters, but leaving her mom and everything, suddenly it was like, ah, I think, you know, being away from my mother's a bit hard. So she decided not to go back to the school. Mm-hmm. And this was in 1991, and you didn't need a, an ID to get on an airplane. So I just took her ticket. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, Whoa. I know, because that was back when it was like taking wow. a bus, you know. So I took her ticket back to Montreal and um, showed up at the school that September, not having applied or done any, you know, and I just basically said, okay, I'm here, I'm, I'm here, I'm coming to school. And they looked at me and said, well, um, you know, there's a whole application process and we don't have a spot for you. And I said, well, you have to find one because I'm here. Um, so I, I sort of hung around for several months until basically they let me in. I mean, that's more or less oh what gosh. happened. So, yeah. <laughs> And that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Did you study trapeze at school, presumably? So, right. So, yes, have a drink. Um, so, um, I actually, when I first, part of the contingency of letting me in was they said, we have no spots in trapeze because this coach, Andre, like I said, he, he was sort of the, the star coach at the school. So, all the trapeze artists were flocking there. So, they were always overrun with trapeze artists. And the other thing, kind of important to mention, was then there wasn't really a lot of aerial. Like, um, mm-hmm. silks hadn't been quote unquote invented yet. 
Um, there wasn't hoop, aerial hoop the way we think of it now. I think there was Lyra and mm-hmm. you know, it was different dimensions. No one was really doing it in that, um, at least not in Montreal. Um, and and even, you know, dance, there, it was really like there was trapeze mm-hmm. and rope. I mean, God, I'm trying to, and then like the really, um, you know, flying trapeze and cradle, like the really acrobatic aerial things. So basically anyone who wanted to be an aerialist became a trapeze artist. So <laughs> like static trap or swinging trap? Both. And that was actually the other thing was that to be a legitimate trapeze artist, you had to swing as well. Oh. So that I feel wow. like one of the reasons I became a, a swinger <laughs> um, <laughs> was that it was sort of like I needed to. I mean, I, what I was attracted to was the static because I liked the danciness. I liked the the theatricality. But I knew that I couldn't like, kind of be a legitimate trapeze artist if I didn't swing because it was sort of all in one. Like back then you really did a static and then a swinging. Oh, wow. And the typical thing was the static was with no belt and you're very high and it's very risky. And then you'd put on a belt for for, for the swinging because you know yeah right. <laughs> um, so so that was sort of the standard thing and then there were people where it was the opposite who were way more sort of gymnastic and they the, the swinging was what they really excelled at and then they had to do the static because once again you can't be a legitimate trapeze artist so sort of forcing them to kind of find choreography or their own you know style so Anyway, so the school was kind of overrun with trapeze artists. And then um, so the director sort of said, OK, I can take you for the first year, but I don't have a spot in trapeze. So I spent the first year being a generalist, which now actually that's that's more common. Back then, it wasn't really a set three year program and you really kind of came right away with a specialty. Mm-hmm. Um, so but I think it was a good thing. But because Andre particularly knew I wanted trapeze, he'd take me sometimes on my lunch hour and he'd get me up there. So I was still kind of learning as I went. And then. My second year, I, I was in trapeze. And then Andre moved to um, Circus Scorani Subois, which is outside of Paris, um, transferred there. And he actually asked myself and another student, Caroline, to follow him. And at the time, I was really loving being in the school in Montreal, but I didn't. I actually, it turns out they they hired Victor Formine to replace Andre. So I actually could have continued and done trapeze with Victor, who ended up being an amazing coach. But I didn't know he was coming. So in my mind, if I wanted to continue swinging, I had to follow Andre because I didn't think there would be any option to stay in Montreal. So I sort of, you know, I was sad, but I left Montreal to go to the school in outside France and it was outside France, outside Paris. And so it was, did you graduate technically? There was no, there was no graduate. I, I mean, they gave me some sort of certificate saying, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, but there was no, cause it wasn't yet a government program. Mm. So no one really graduated. And in fact, I mean, I kind of liked back then that there were people who would basically be in the school for seven years. Like they oh, just, wow. just continue, right. you know, and when they were in town, they'd train there and they'd take classes and then others who would do a year and leave. Um, and it was really open ended in that way. I mean, I, I, it's a way more, I mean, it, it, it's a better program now, I, but I, I kind of enjoyed that personally. Yeah. And especially cause I was still, I had been a professional, like I'd, I'd been at pickles and I still had gigs. Like there was a dance company that I would do trapeze for in San Francisco oh, that I cool. wanted to go back. And I think it was a little bit more of an openness in terms of the fact we were working artists mm-hmm. who were also at the school. Um, you know, and they would take, because there wasn't a sense of graduating and, having to have this product of the graduating class and their level. And that was one of the things now that sort of, mm. you know, affects the their continued funding is, you know, showing mm. sort of what's coming out of the school. So then that in turn made, I would say, their um, acceptance criteria higher because they also knew they needed sort of to produce in a certain way. Um, and back then, because there wasn't that dynamic, you know, there were people who were taken who were in their 30s and, you know, had, I mean, it was, it was much more, I'm going to say diverse, but in the sense, um, 
yeah, from different walks of life yeah. and that. And I think it, I found it really stimulating. So there were also, you know, the young little gymnasts who <laughs> wanted to start to, you know, do trapeze after being almost Olympic gymnasts. But there were also people who'd done physical theater and, yeah. you know, had a few juggling skills. Right. So, yeah. Well, so when you were at ENC, or I guess, mm-hmm. what, was it, what was it called? It was, it, it was called ENC. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It so, yeah. it's so funny because, you know, going through, I don't know, six years now of being in this, like, circus world, mm-hmm. I, like, and just at the point where I feel like, okay, I finally sort of get it, right. you know, but yeah, there's yeah. so much to learn, yeah. which is exciting. But, um, so when you were there was, the, so you met Gypsy when you were at the Pickles or? Even you- before, when we were, like, 14. So, like I mentioned, my father was, he actually, not only, I, I sort of, not only was he, um, did he write their book and all of that, he fell in love with the company, became the, he was on the board of directors, became mm. chairman of the board of directors. I mean, he really mm. loved it. it. He, he planned their their annual fund- second generation circus then, if he was I, on the I guess, board yeah. Maybe yeah. I can yeah. say that. Yeah, yeah, it's true, though. I mean, he, he definitely was full on in, in it. He just couldn't himself so do anything. So was he just, but- like, loving that you were... He was actually, and it was interesting because I think he loved it when I was at Pickles. I think when I moved on into the more Cirque stuff, I think it was fine, but I think he had this real passion for Pickles. And my mother was kind of the opposite where she was a little bit worried about my kind of, I don't know, my future and my security. (laughs) And then, and you know, and traveling around with the Pickles was sort of okay, but she was waiting for me to go to college. And then when it sort of, you know, contrarily, when I then moved on to do Cirque du Soleil and she came to see the show and realized, okay, this is like, you know. Not that pickles wasn't a legitimate right. art form, but in terms Being your of daughter in the yeah, state, and I yeah. think in terms of gen- overall um, um, uh, perception, yeah. yes, credibility. So I think she realized like, okay, this is a real career. So that, but I mean, he still, I think he still loved that I that I did that. Yeah. But no, he did something that every year as their fundraiser. Um, he did a, a citywide treasure hunt oh, for pickles, which is when he did, he partnered with a private detective. And so, um, so even though I wasn't all to say, even though I wasn't into circus, I was constantly at these events and right. I met Gypsy when she was, we were 14 cause our parents are friends. Presumably Lorenzo as well. Lorenzo as well, who yeah. was, you know, at that point eight, I think when <laughs> I met him or something. And then I performed with him when he was 12, you know, when I finally joined the company yeah. and he was one of my close buddies and we'd take dirt bikes in Arcata <laughs> and go, I mean, it was really, you know, I toured with, with 12 year old Lorenzo. Lorenzo I knew him better at 12 than I do yeah. now. I mean, I know him. Oh my gosh. He's doing yeah. so cool stuff. Yeah, cool yeah. Stuff now. Yeah. I mean, we had him on been, um, before, um, he started doing like the physical, um, I don't know what, what physical coordinator or what yeah, I design. Yeah, yeah, physical yeah, design yeah. for Broadway shows. So yeah. we'll have to have him back on. Right, but we exactly. saw Frozen and that was very clearly like, oh, that's that style. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah it's Frozen and touch. Beetlejuice. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. I have to, I have to see. So when you were at ENC, was Gypsy, like, at what point do you meet mm. all of your fellow... Well, that's what's well, like kind of several chapters later. But, okay, so but no, no, well, but it's good. no, I can I can skip ahead. No, 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 I yeah. don't want to skip ahead. So you don't you don't meet them while you're at. Well, Gypsy and cool. I kind of so each one of them I have a very different backstory with. Okay. Um, Gypsy and I, so we knew each other when we were fourteen. When I started Pickles, um, you know, I she. Because I knew her through our parents, she was my friend, and I said, you know, I want to do this. So she was my first coach. So <laughs> she was the one who, you know, I said, I, I oh, I, now, I, now I want to be a circus performer. So she, like, you know, 
got me in there, put me on her shoulders, showed me how to do tempo. She gave me like just the basics. And in, you know, in in her very gypsy visionary way of sort of like, you, you can't do a trick until you can do a perfect forward <laughs> roll. And, you know, really, oh, yeah. and then gave me a whole education. I mean, it's crazy to think that I sort of got it, you know, for free, essentially that, you know, <laughs> took me to her house and showed me all the videos of all the historic acts and, and gave me this whole like, boot camp of circus yeah. history and respect. And I mean, really, like, I think the most essential lessons I learned about circus were through Gypsy. And I think she very much had that role in general. Like when I was mm-hmm. explaining about the, the sisters, the Decellas, um, the reason they got into it was Sky and Gypsy went to high school together at oh. Urban. And so, so Gypsy and Sky became close friends. Sky started doing trapeze. And then her other sisters came into it and Gypsy similarly trained them mm-hmm. and kind of took them under her wing. So she was already in this, you know, teacher mentor mm-hmm. role as a teenager. Um, so she, anyway, so that happened when we were 18, she went off to, uh, the Dimitri school. Yeah. And I was, that was while I was touring, but every time she'd come back into town, you know, mm-hmm. she'd come home to pickles and she'd see the show and she'd give us notes and, and continued to be one of my closest friends during those years. So then when I, you know, we'd always meet up in some corner of the world when I was in France and, um, you know, she'd come to visit. And then particularly when I was touring Salton Banco, so in Europe, 1995 to 97, she was... Uh, either at the school or touring with Dimitri Company, anyway, based in Switzerland. And it's just the most gorgeous place in the world, Mm -hmm. by the way. So I would constantly on my weeks between cities, I'd go down and stay with her. Um, Even like, you know, use their little dance studio to play around with ideas. She'd come up and visit me on tour. Um, Really quite a lot. Like just because we were fairly close, we'd always try to find ways of meeting up to the point that then I even sort of said, you know, Gypsy, you can, you should be in this show. And, um, and so she, I mean, I don't think that's why she ended up in Saltimbanco, but still that sort of conversation happened. And then when, uh, then she was hired for Pomp Duck by Cirque and they were kind of thinking of sort of transferring her essentially to Saltimbanco, the, the remount, cause we'd supposedly closed it, but they were remounting it for Australia and Asia in 98. Um, and it was funny cause I had decided not to go back on the show cause mm-hmm. I was, anyway, I had other things. And then I heard Gypsy was on it and I'm like, Oh gosh, you know, it'd be so crazy. So anyway, that was one of the reasons I actually decided to go back on it. So then we toured Saltimanco together for, you know, and that's when, I mean, already we'd been such close friends, but that's when we were, you know, we were roommates, we were next to each other in the dressing room. It just became like, <laughs> right. you know, Bill Fortune and Elsie and Serenity Smith on that. They were on that one. Before. Yeah. So they weren't on my first tour, but they were on that tour. So the that's one. how all I these know. people I are know. on this, the same show. <laughs> it's like they all, it's, yeah. it's cool. When you, mm-hmm. So when you went to Paris to yes. keep studying with Andre, what, at what point did you, dis, how did you get into the Cirque yeah. universe? So there's a whole other little side story here, which I'm worried is going to be we long to story. tell. Okay. So my first husband. <laughs> oh, I love a story that starts with my first husband. Um, was a Chinese acrobat. Um, no, so basically when I was at Pickles, I mean, you guys know who Lu Yi, Lu Yi is, right? Yes. Okay. So The acrobatic coach. At the the acrobatic coach at, in, at Circus School. Center. And he was... Um, Artistic director of the Nanjing Acrobatic Troupe. Actually, there's an interesting story where they would often be the the troupe that would do these sort of um, collaborations with non-Chinese companies like Circus Oz and Big Apple Circus. And in the 80, late 80s, I want to say 88, they did one with Big Apple and um, and some brothers defected. 
like jugglers from China. From China. And wow. this is like, you know, late 80s. So when they came, when the Nanjing acrobatic, God, I hope I'm not saying anything. This anyway, when the Nanjing oh, acrobatic troop well, came yeah. back to, to Nanjing, they were kind of, they were essentially punished. Um, and for, I don't know for how long, but kind of not allowed to leave the country. And, and Lu Yi was blamed because he was the artistic director. And, uh, and so he really wanted to find a, you know, to go somewhere to, you know, so he kind of put his figures out in the meantime at Pickles, Judy Finelli was our artistic director and she would, this was 89 to 89. She was putting her feelers out knowing cause Larry had just left the company and she was artistic director, but very much bringing in all sorts of, um, other, you know, coaches and directors and choreographers, you know, really trying to breathe new life into the company and had a huge fascination, fascination with, with the Russian, um, uh, system, but also the Chinese acrobatics system. So somehow they connect, they met in the middle, they connected. And so we brought Lu Yi over with pickles in, in 1990. And I remember we all like had to take Chinese classes before he <laughs> arrived because he didn't speak any English. Um, and when he came part of his, I don't know if it's part of his deal, but he sort of suggested that he bring with him two of his star acrobats so he could bring the level up. Um, now I know more of the backstory. And also they were sort of the two, his two acrobats that were kind of, you know, like almost like his children. So mm-hmm. one of them was Huang Zhen, who became later my husband, and the other was Zhu Yue. And, uh, and Huang Zhen was, you know, he joined the acrobatic troupe, you know, after three years of, of elementary school. And then, you know, when he was nine or something. Oh, and so then when... <laughs> Oh, he, oh, he was amazing. But he was so talented, actually, more than he was so talented that he um, was the only in the troop they meet in the school. They immediately put him in the touring company. So he was the mm. one child oh, wow. that would you know do the trick, you know, land <laughs> right. teeterboard trick, landing in the chair, and all of that. So Lu Yi was like his father because basically he toured from the time he was, I want to say like twelve or something. Um, and so, so Lu Yi wanted to bring Huang Zhen and also Zhu Yu was another one of his, you know, sort of like his children. So Huang Zhen and I fell in love. I was 19. Um, he was an amazing Chinese acrobat. And and amongst sort of in that story of like when I, I mentioned we went to Montreal to visit our friends who were there while we were on tour. So it was Huang Zhen and I who went together and we met Andrew Watson, who was the casting director who had, you know, he was re- he, he'd come and seen us at Pickles. He sort of knew us like the, the world was very small then the circus world. Um, and because it was 1990. So Cirque was doing their first ever pole act, um, Chinese pole, Chinese pole act okay. in which turned out to be Salt and Monco, but it was it was a year before Salt and Monco was created. Um, no, sorry, 91, 1991. Um, and so Andrew was there. I don't know. He'd seen Huang because Huang Zhen was basically the best like pole climber in the world. Like he mm. invented the turning climb and all. Oh, that. Wow. I mean, he was just amazing. Um, uh, I love that. So climb. yeah, and at that time, like the only Chinese acrobats that Cirque hired was through the. CPA, you know, it was really this whole mm-hmm. kind of governmental system and there weren't really freelance Chinese acrobats, but because Huang Zhen had left the system and he was with Pickles, it was like a whole other category. And that became really interesting also for Cirque to have mm. his expertise without, you know, anyway. Um, so they, um, so anyway, so we, we, we made that connection with Andrew and immediately, you know, Andrew was clearly really interested in the idea of having Huang Zhen. So then when I decided to go to school, um, I also left Huang Zhen 
which is a whole other story, which I said is like gets into the personal part of it. But as soon as I was in Montreal, we, you know, it means we missed each other so much. Right. It was just this like, you know, this love story, you know, just tearing our hearts out. Whatever. 19, you know, yeah. Like, oh, my oh. God. I mean, at that point I was like just turned 21. Like we were but together. Still that, yeah, that still. love that you feel at know, that time is just like so. It was so crazy. And we were, you know, we went we met in New York for a weekend. We were on the I mean, the whole deal. And then so and he wasn't really he didn't have strong feelings about going to Cirque du Soleil or not but in fact because I was in Montreal part of being together was me saying oh, let me talk to Andrew and get you on Saltimanco and that way you can come and we can be together and everything so like I was saying Cirque was training their brand new Chinese pole act at my lunch hour at circus school and I'm hanging out with you know the coach and Andrew and saying you know my boyfriend actually <laughs> um, and actually really I mean Andrew and I joked about this for years later that he kind of just took my word for it I mean he'd seen him but yeah. you know through a couple of right. conversations in the foyer of the school you know, we ended up bringing Huang Zhen over to join the troupe. And actually, it was it was so helpful. Like, he told them how to, the kind of shoes to have, the kind of glue to have. I mean, he yeah, really became wow. sort of the pole specialist and really definitely brought the level up. Um, in fact, when he finally left the show, they replaced him with three people. They got <laughs> they got two Chinese acrobats through the CPA that had that alternated. And uh, and then one house troupe artist, because the Chinese acrobats can't do that, you know, because he'd play, you know, it was house right. troupe. So they ended up, so it was, it was always my little, my little joke. They had to replace him with three people. Um, you know, because he did the bungee act. He oh, did, wow. yeah. So then, so from... 92 to 94. Were you married at this point? Or were no, we well, together? we got married in 93. So okay. 92 to 94, um, he was on tour with Saltimanco. I actually, I was at school and I would go to even the rehearsals for Saltimanco to go join him and kind of translate, even though I didn't really speak French. I, like I knew that I could speak English in a way I knew he would understand. <laughs> so I'd often I just translate English to English. But um, <laughs> And I was there with him and then I'd spend my summers on tour with Saltimanco. So I actually worked in the kitchen. I always joke that my oh, first wow. job in Cirque du Soleil was working in the kitchen, but I had, you know, I was there visiting Huang Zen. I'd even train in the artistic tent and even in the big top sometimes. Um, that's such a cool thing to say that for is. somebody who directs Cirque du Soleil. Yeah. Saying, I started, <laughs> I know, I started in the kitchen. <laughs> totally. I remember really well. I'd be making lattes for everybody in the morning. And sometimes I was the first, I did the morning shift and I was the first to open up the site. And I, it felt so weird. Did they have to the be. nice kitchens they have. Yeah. Back yeah. It was, I mean, that's been pretty consistent. Yeah. So it was really, and they were great chefs, such great chefs. And I had, I had a really, I had fun time with them. My only you know, kitchen uh, restaurant job I've ever had in my life. Um, but you know, so I would, yeah, uh, cuisine and confessions that many years. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> they all started there. No, but I, I mean, I, in fact, Laurent, the, the kitchen manager, he, it was his idea just cause he saw me on tour all the time with Wang Zen. He's like, do you want a job? To, you know, just make some money while you're here. And so I thought, yeah, sure. That and makes so, sense. so I spend my summers, um, with Salton Banco. And then every time I had, you know, a, a, a long weekend or the Christmas break. So in fact, for a lot of people on the tour, they kind of thought I was just sort of a member of tour. Like, they didn't realize how much I came and went. And then in the meantime, I'd go back and I'd be in circus school. So I was sort of straddling, you know, and there would be, we'd be in Santa Monica with crazy it's so cool to be around, celebrity. like these performance opportunities while in school. So it's like, yeah. the school isn't so like academically removed from, mm-hmm. you know, the importance of doing it in front of an audience so and true. what the end goal yeah. in a way is. And it was funny because when I, by the time, because I eventually joined Saldemanco, and at that point, 
I believe I saw the show more than anyone ever had because even the people right. who were the directors on tour, you know, they had other jobs they had to do. I mean, I I could not miss a show. I would come on tour and he said, you want to stay home tonight? Something else. I'm like, no, 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 I really, I can't miss a show. Um, so, I mean, I just had it so memorized. I was like already like giving notes to people, which <laughs> now I think back, if like a little 21 year old circus student gave me notes, but I really, I mean, I just had the whole thing memorized. Mm-hmm. I remember talking to Renee Bazinet, like, yeah, I think when you do the thing with the audience, it's much more clear when you say, okay, you know, I mean, it was really, anyway, um, uh, so yeah, so I had this sort of dual life in that way. Um, and actually the reason I joined, it was sort of interesting because he wanted to leave. I mean, I had, after being in the school in Montreal, I was in France. France is at that time, the, the circus, the contemporary circus scene. I mean, it's similar now, but it was really, you know, circus selling out and it's really, oh, yeah. it was really in the avant-garde, you know, I mean, really the still fact, sort of there. it's still <laughs> sort of there, but you know, I did kind of have mixed feelings. Like I didn't necessarily, what wasn't like my dream to go and join Cirque, but I was also still going and visiting him on tour and everything. But the main thing was that we wanted to do a duo. So that was the mm. thing it was like, we'd been doing duo the long distance thing. Do a trapeze. So he, you know, he's he's not he wasn't an aerialist necessarily, but being a pole climber and he did the bungee. So you know, he's an upper body person. Mm-hmm. Um, and we and he's so we were we were the same height. He had really long black hair, like same size. There was something like, you know, there we we were aware that it could really be a sort of a nice duo. Um, so we had this idea we want to do a duo number, and then he was doing his contract negotiations with Jean Saint Croix. And said, oh, no, I don't think I'm going to resign because you know, I really want to do a duo with my wife. And they knew me. And Jill right away went, oh, my God, what an idea. That would be great. So, the, I mean, what's so funny to me now is I was actually originally hired because of this fantasy of Huang Zhan and I doing a duo, which we never did. <laughs> and That's and funny. I went to it was when they were in Japan. I went to visit him and there was all these contract negotiations and they brought me in. And I remember, I think I sort of had the flash basically because at that point they'd never had backup acts. Mm. And the twins who were at that point, uh, Sarah and Karin Stebbin, um, you know, and it was, you know, it was a high injury uh, act, mm-hmm. um, which like static trapeze into swinging. Basically, yeah. And it was, person. it was, it was two persons. So a lot of like oh, foot right. catches and things like that, you know, it's really hard on the shoulders. And I Did think you wear that green costume. No, no. So that's the thing. So I had, I had, I had my, own, I had my own blue costume. No, but um, but basically they they were out a lot, and uh, and then also I think for their upcoming contract, you know, wanted to negotiate having cities off and just so. That I think the idea was that Huang Zhen and I would be their backups, but you know, to create an entire duo trapeze act is you know, a, you know, it's a high order, tall order. So um, I kind of said, well, why don't you know, I have a solo act. Why don't we just take my solo act to be the backup in the meantime, and then when the duo is ready, we can do the duo. Um, and then, and then I got to the to the studio to which you know at that point anyway, and there was Lynn Hewer, who's the director of the studio, and she said, yeah, I. She was sort of like, this duo thing's not very realistic. Let's focus on your solo. <laughs> so, so really quickly, we like no one ever talked about the duo again. But the genesis of the solo trapeze act in Sultan Mongo was kind of me going, you know, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. So then that's sort of how I ended up joining. And it was partly so Huang Zhen and I could be together. Um, and then we spent... How did he feel about not doing the, the duo act? He kind of didn't care. <laughs> I mean, he really that. also... The other thing about Huang Zhen is he... I think it's a little bit typical for, you know, there's a certain generation of, you know, the the Chinese acrobats who, you know, had very, very um, hard and painful training. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, growing up in communist China and stuff, 
I mean, he was kind of looking for a way out in mm-hmm. a way. Like he'd sort of yeah. done, you know, he'd... he'd <laughs> kind of life already doing <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And he was sort of continuing for me. Um, and in fact, that's eventually why we split up was that he like, kind of didn't want to tour anymore. And he had a whole... His fantasy was, you know, starting a business because that's, you know, the entrepreneur yes. dream right. of someone who grows up in communist China. So he really wanted to go to Vegas and start... What he did start was sort of an agency for Chinese acrobats. And, oh, nice. And then he had a, a kiosk and a food court. I mean, he was oh. kind of doing... And lots of things at once and when he so he left tour early um and he even did that tour because he knew like my career was just starting so he wanted to you know sort of do it for me but then after a year he was like you know he left tour early we decided we would kind of again do sort of long distance i finished the second year of tour and theoretically we were supposed to go and join him in vegas and i just got there i was like i do not want to live in vegas i don't this no. is not in there i had another offer for another tour with El was and this and that and at one point it really i mean it was very pre-mister vegas as well or this was, was no because mister mister just started and yeah. i in fact when i went to visit him i had a few friends at mister it was the only show there and um and i remember you know there was like you know like five people i knew and okay we could make a little community i mean now it's a yeah. huge community yeah. but i remember that idea of well, it's not so bad you know we have some friends that's where everybody um, starts i think when they go to yeah vegas. exactly yeah. right 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 um i mean now actually i visited recently and i'm like okay it's it's this is not the vegas of, of 1997 no, or whatever it was um it's probably the biggest circus community outside of montreal yeah in america Crazy. It's crazy. Um, yeah. So, so then, uh, uh, so it just kind of, I mean, it was actually really not even, I mean, it was very natural that we kind of realized, okay, our lives are going in different directions. And, and then I rejoined Saltimbanco for the, like I was saying, the Asia Pacific tour. Um, and at that point kind of, Huangs and I were technically married, but we knew that we were sort of no longer together and we were both like, it was very clear. And I met Seb. So it was sort of interesting that the show that, you know, I joined to be with my first husband was in the end where I met my second oh, husband. So, <laughs> what was that doing on the show? So he, um, he was, uh, he was a, you know, a house troupe and was, he's a porter. So he did, there was a guy named Vitek who was in the original cast and did, did the show up until 97 when we closed at the Albert Hall. And he was one of those just amazing, like you put him in every act, you know, just magnetic on stage, you know, as porters are in terms of like just being helpful in every act and was all over the place. Um, And so Seb ended up sort of taking his slot and Vitek, among other things, did sort of my entrance dance for my number. I had this kind of like, you know, passionate pas de deux with a guy because I wanted to sort of tell this whole story about having to like leave a man in order to go and fly and be free on the trapeze and then come back if you and it was just sort of like I had my own little you know I was in my 20s but yeah. that was the story I wanted <laughs> to tell so I had that with VTech and then when Seb came he really you know he was in that costume and he really wanted to do the dance and I was really kind of hard on him but that's sort of <laughs> where we met was him having to do this like passionate pas de deux with me and everyone was joking about us getting together I was like no no never <laughs> never never uh, but um, that's yeah that's how we got together <laughs> so I want to jump ahead a little yeah, bit. Yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So lots of people say, and I think it's true, that Seven Fingers, at least, you know, I, I'm, I'm talking about it looking back, so maybe this wasn't the case at the time, but from retrospect, mm-hmm. looks like a complete reaction to what Cirque du Soleil mm-hmm. was doing at the time with the amount of makeup, how it's not really mm-hmm. about the individual. Mm-hmm. Right. 
the overwhelming level of spectacle. Mm -hmm. Did it feel like you guys were purposefully reacting to it at the time, or was it? Uh, yeah, but in a very um, a personal, like a uh, 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 micro way. Um, like we just had ourselves been on those shows, and we're sort of more. I mean, the way you just go, okay, I'm kind of done, you know, putting all this makeup on. I'd really love because we were performers on stage. So I think yes, we had a vision. I don't want to make it seem. Uh, there, there was vision to it, knowing what we felt the circus world needed. Mm. Um, but there was also a very instinctive thing of what we ourselves needed as performers. Mm. Um, and I think there was, I mean, I, I'll be honest in that, like coming from theater, there was there, I was missing it. I wanted mm. to like, yeah. uh, to speak on stage <laughs> and have it be much more naturalistic. Um, and like I was saying about the, my whole original idea of, um, when I first saw, saw, saw Trapeze Artist and relating to her, um, that actually continued. When I was at Circa, I was really like a rebel. I refused to wear <laughs> actually, the makeup artist, and I still joke about this, how I like wouldn't wear the big makeup she gave me. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not doing that. Like, I want, I want to look like a real person, you know, for my act, obviously, right. if I was in the big group acts. But, you know, I really, I, you know, I really sort of thought that I looked like a woman because I wanted mm. to tell a person's story and not like a... Creature. A, a creature, creature right, yeah. Right. Um, so so for me, that's always been kind of my thing and mm -hmm. that I was sort of always fight for while I was at CIRC. And even for other people, was, I, I believed strongly in it. So it, there was no question starting the company that that was sort of something that was like kind of a given. But like I said, I think there was also like a genuine personal desire to just be ourselves on stage mm -hmm. um, and tell intimate stories. And be, you know, I think also there's something about... I mean, it, it was our taste, but it's also the, the pleasure of performing intimately with mm -hmm. an audience and really connecting mm -hmm. with an audience that when you're in big shows, you don't necessarily yeah. get. And I remember telling people how, like, you know, people think it's so great to get all this applause, but actually you're, you're in such a bubble. You, it's like, you're just throwing things it's out into the, I know <laughs> you're throwing things out <laughs> into the Emmy yeah. and then you're like, I don't know if they like, you know, you're, it's a very right. kind of weirdly lonely life and now like directing or teaching you know it's an immediate exchange yeah. and there's a human exchange you have eye contact and you see if you've said something that's affected them and you they say something that affects you and being a performer it's just like it's um transmitting without receiving you know mm -hmm. i always feel yeah. bad for the the cirque clowns because to me i'm like oh god what a a, lo a lonely spot to be in the middle of this massive tent right and you're doing this, you know, physical comedy act and you can hear laughter, yeah. but you also can't like you, you have no relationship to the audience. And yeah, I always the one thing that I am like, always like mm, about Cirque shows is the clowning because I mm. just I always feel like, oh, I wish it was. Mm. Well, it depends on the clowning. So the years like Nouvelle X and Saltabanco. That, I mean, that was the area, the era, very much of like the audience participation mm -hmm. clown. David Shiner. David Shiner and Renee Bazinet. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that actually, for me, it was sort of the opposite where they had the most intimate experience with the audience. Right. And there was such a call and response. And it was so, and the fact they were, I feel like we, we tend to think actually a, a, a chapiteau isn't a huge space, but we feel like it's this huge space. Yeah. So we have to fill it up. And in fact, quite often, I even noticed this doing Crystal. Actually, if you do something 
sorry, simple and isolated, people will zoom in mm. and it actually makes it more intimate right, than trying to like in fill a, the space. Arena. It's an arena. And I, and I, show. yeah. And I believe strongly it's like watching a, like at a concert when you watch a single performer on oh stage, gosh, you zoom in. Like, like you when really, Taylor Swift just yeah, plays exactly. at the piano, yeah. everyone's like, oh my yeah. God. And yeah. it's amazing. Cause you're all, that also means that everyone in the audience has the same focus at that yeah. moment. It's and not like all the dancers in the part. Yeah, exactly. So you're really in terms of the whole communal experience of yeah. live performance. Like you really, really feel that you're all witnessing the same thing. Right. So anyway, so I used so to sort of I'm, feel, no, but I think yeah. it's something, it depends on the style of clowning because I think that when it's the, the numbers that are less kind of audience participation, I don't just mean like literally taking the guy from the audience, right. which they those acts were that but I know Renee's act there was a lot of you know like playing catch with them mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just really kind of that live thing of like okay I'm 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 Here. part of this show I have <laughs> to wake up you know I would say that the mm-hmm. one cl- the, the latest clown act I saw that changed my feelings about was um in Luzia oh yeah which one the clown he he does have yeah. a ball he has a whistle. Yeah. And oh, he's yeah. like walking around as the stage is turning. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, like that yeah. was, I thought, in very, mm-hmm. I mean, I really yeah. liked that show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but mm-hmm. what was I, oh, also, interestingly enough, so when I first met Josh, I was like, you know, obsessed with So You Think You Can Dance. And mm-hmm. I was like, you have to watch this number. It was like a Travis Wall mm-hmm. piece called Statue of Statue. And it was mm-hmm. like, what I was thinking was like hand to hand. Yeah, yeah. Because sure, yeah. it was an acrobatic. I sure. Yeah. I was like, you would love this. Yeah, There's so yeah. many like tricks and, you know. Yeah. And he was like, oh, let me show you a real hand to hand. Yeah. And the first act I ever saw was seven. Memes. Oh, cool. Hand to hand act. And I was yeah. like, oh, my God. I had no idea this yeah. is what circus could be. Yeah. And um, and so you, cool. you. Yeah. yeah. But that was it's that was I mean. It was a pleasure, but it was so easy because I know it's like two people I know, like the back of my hand and quite often, you know, you start an act. It's like, okay, let's let's do some improvs. Let's try to find the essence. And you kind of really get into like with them, it was like hit the ground running. I mean, it really, there was a lot of obviously physical exploration. Like, what if you take her here and the neck and the thing? And that was fun. But the energy, it sort of, we, we knew what it was going to be just from, you know, there was a lot of unspoken, you know, we just all knew each other so well. So, right. I want to circle back eventually. Yeah, sure. To the beginning, sure, sure. But while we're on this topic yeah. of act creation, one of the things that like I think is so amazing about Seven Fingers is always the opening numbers mm. that you guys mm-hmm. do, which is a combination of like dance and acrobatics. Mm-hmm. It sort of introduces the characters yeah. in the show. I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about the creation method of teaching mm-hmm. dance to circus performers and also pulling out the best in them and right. how you you know, it's one thing to work with an artist and help them work on their solo or a duo, but getting right. people to work as a group. Yeah. Just sort of how you think about that. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll say, I kind of want to preface it. For instance, I just did uh, Passager, Passengers, and it was like the first time I worked with a cast where they were all such good movers that I really didn't feel like the sort of pedagogic side of like, okay, let's work on your movement quality. I mean, they they just came with so much movement yeah. baggage and they all had their style. And they so it was really more a question of, of, um, kind of capturing it and, and using it correctly and 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 kind of sculpting it with the, the 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 overall vision and structure and meaning and everything but just the movement quality they were just so wonderful that it was really I just want to say that that because it's been it's it depends I mean yeah. there are people you work with where it's like just finding their movement quality I mean even right. that is the first step because I mean first of all no matter what, you know, circus people, they're not trained dancers. And so really to get them to be dancers, you sort of have to find their unique way of moving. Mm -hmm. That's my feeling. Some are, 
you know, have more capacity to learn all sorts of different styles. But I think that's essentially it. It's also kind of what I believe. It's sort of part of my own philosophy of like, you have, I mean, it's like the Martha Graham quote mm-hmm. about, you know, the life force vitality, but I mean, you have something very individual that no one else has. And like, that's much more worthwhile to see on stage than watching you learn pirouettes right. and chassés and whatever. Um, so, so, and, and I think, and, and, and that circus, you know, even if you think back in the vaudeville days of like, it's, you know, the gotta get a gimmick, like from Gypsy, yeah. um, that it's, it's about, you know, what, what makes you special? Like, how is your act going to be different from everyone else's? Cause yeah, yeah, it's like, okay, I'll, I can do that, but I'm gonna be playing the trumpet. I, you, you know, there's get still, a gimmick if you want to get, get ahead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And there's like in Gypsy, yeah, there's one who plays the, tr- the strippers and one who yeah. plays the trumpet and one's nipples has, light, like, light up. up. And, yeah. yeah. But it's sort of, how do you get that one idea that no one else has? And there's remnants of that yeah. in, in modern day circus. Um, even, you know, in, in school, it's, I mean, it's on a, bit of a deeper level now like at ENC but like how is your number going to like reinvent innovate be different how is your personality different so I think that's really embedded in circus so similarly I feel like movement wise that's a lot of like okay what what is your style of movement that's going to make this different but do you start um, with a picture in your head of like this is what I'm going to work towards or are you a totally open slate and yeah you just sort of see how it, it goes depends on well so let's say, let's say I was just, if I was just creating an act and it mm-hmm. wasn't in a show, because obviously when there's a show, there's, there's like, I, this needs to be about the platform and going somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not just, oh, you, what's your energy, you know? So, um, so if I'm just talking about working with someone, I mean, I think that sometimes I really have like it becomes instantly clear like who their character is and what their energy is and then I'm, it's more a question of trying to get them there through improvs or through mm. you know them finding mm. it I also feel you know like in theater a director's never supposed to do a line reading right and I kind of feel similarly like in sense of movement that it's like I don't want to be like go like this and da, 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 you know I feel yeah. like I want them to Isn't kind of so find hard it. not to do that though where you're like just like maybe yeah, <laughs> yeah just if you just, I mean every now and then there's like you just get up and like if you just put your leg there no <laughs> Um, Maybe but, that's yeah. Right. but yeah, but you know, trying to sort of get them to find it. And I usually feel like there's always this moment where when we're trying to find the essence of the number where there is one little gesture or moment that, okay, that's like, yeah. that's the little essential oil and then building from that. I mean, it's really, um, when you I've, say like, yeah. improv, what mm-hmm. do you mean? Because obviously uh, I have yeah. like an idea of like right, right, what right. improv uh, an acting yeah. state would be. But. God, there's so many different, I mean, I, it's, it's like structured improvs and there's tons of different types. Um, but you know, there's, there's dance improvs in the sense of giving them a theme and a music. And, uh, sometimes like I have one I would typically do where I'd make them write down verbs mm. that they associate, like for instance, on a very basic level, if it's just their apparatus, like just associate with doing the apparatus. Cause that's the other thing is the apparatus is a character in it. Yeah. Um, and then I just yell the verbs at them while they're doing things. So like to burn and then they like, yeah. um, so, I mean, that's, that was sort of one of the more like, um, like fundamental ones. But I mean, often it's like if I go back to, to Passager, I mean, we did a lot of improvs around, um, you know, wanting them to explore, you know, the different ways of, of showing movement, of showing reflect, you know, all these themes of of the show. Um, goodbyes, like we had ones that were just completely, you know, sort of um, improvs around saying goodbye. Sometimes it's structured things where, you know, they're all on stage and say, okay, you all have to have moments of stillness, have moments where you speak, have moments of reflection, have moments where you imitate someone, you know, give them all these instructions. Mm -hmm. Um, And usually 
it's just kind of like, you know, it's like ingredients in, in the bouillabaisse. Like eventually something will bubble up that really comes from them and from something incredibly spontaneous and wonderful. And then you kind of latch on to like, oh, that moment there. OK, let's let's go back to that. Let's build on that. Um, so, I mean, I think that's really where you get most of the raw material. And back to your question for the people where you don't really know where you're going to where you're going to find that. You find it through, I find it through the improv usually. And sometimes mm. it's theatrical. I mean, if I think in the early days when we do also, you know, have them, you, know, you have 10 minutes on stage and, you know, or, you know, ones that are more storytelling and things like that. Um, and just sort of it, I, but I feel like it's a little bit of, yeah, you sort of, what do I mean? You just, like I said, it's like a compass, like you have to see the. The, the lighthouse, the beacon through it, like as yeah. you're working, yeah. it's kind of fun to just... That's your job as the director. Yeah, and yeah. I think that that's sort of the thing that, I mean, that's what I focus on most. Um, I mean, the details are fun. It's great. Oh, that's beautiful. Your arm here. But I mean, really, you could just, it's like throwing pasta on the wall. Like you could just be going in any direction and that's good, ex- but you need the beacon because otherwise, is that the right word? Even? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh because then it just all kind of becomes these tools to go towards this one vision. Um, and sometimes if I really don't know what that compass is, that's when there's more pasta on the wall to kind of wait for something to pop up. Um, there's sometimes with a performer where I really feel where their strength or power or character is, is something they're resisting. Mm-hmm. And then it's a different approach where it's not like I don't want someone to do something that's really not them or they don't want to do, but it's sort of like, no, I actually think this is you mm-hmm. and this is where you're going to be strong. And I don't know why you don't want to go there, right. but it becomes a little more therapeutic of like trying to break them down. Um, I just love that doing like a dramatic monologue right. that wasn't comfortable, you know, and then you're like, get into it. And then you have like that breakthrough moment. It's yeah. like so cathartic. Exactly. And, like, the performer. And I'm sure as the director too, to watch the performer, like get, through that moment yeah 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 what exactly and actually just quickly i'm sorry yeah, yeah, no, about no. The improvs. so and and I, I would say that for me like that technique which is not necessarily that designed or structured in my mind but when i was uh so 1996 five, 1995 um a friend of mine i'd been in circus school with started her own little studio in brussels that still exists um l'espace catastrophe um and she asked me to come teach a trapeze class and I hadn't taught really, you know, I was, whatever, I was 24 or something. Um, and so I was on the train because I'd been in Dusseldorf with, with Saltimago. I was on the train going up and I was like, okay, I was trying to remember like all my beginning to be skills. And, okay, I'll teach them the Iron Cross and I'll teach them this. Oh yeah. And there's this. And realized like writing down, I had tons of just, you know, pages and pages of my notebook of all the beginning to be skills and trying to remember how to teach. And I got there. And as soon as I got there, I just sat with them and I was like, okay, we're going to do something different. And for some reason, I just sort of maybe going back to my theater days, I just on the trip did like theater exercises on the trapeze Mm. and just had them, you know, do these things where, you know, there were points in the room and they had to um, think about, you know, people they love at that spot and keep the eye contact. I mean, whatever. I mean, it was really all this stuff to get them to be, you know, emotionally open. And then, um, you know, this contraction and extension on the, so, I mean, I had a series of things that I actually, of my typical exercises, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, sky and earth pull like an like just really feeling the mm-hmm. sense of you know the, the trapeze is in between sky and earth and so like you know constantly using that sense of yeah. you know apollonian and dionysian <laughs> um so anyway and and i think that i don't know but my memory of being in school is we would do all sorts of things that were acting classes or da 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 in a studio mm-hmm. and on our apparatus you'd either train or you'd 
explore. Mm-hmm. You'd research, but but you, we weren't actually doing these these dramatic exercises on our apparatus. And so I, from what I understood, like this was sort of, for me, the step I was taking was kind of like, wait a minute, why don't we just do this on the trapeze? And that's going to define, that's how we're going to actually tell stories and not have you find a bazillion super cool moves and then try to figure out how to put it together and then yeah. put some kind of a feeling on it, right. you know, like let it motivate the uh, You can definitely the see it when that's happened for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how do you think about uh, show themes and concepts? Because you've done everything from food yeah. to the train station to the yeah. world's ending. Right, right. Um, and what, what kinds of things do you think you're drawn to? Are there ideas that you have in your head and then just totally scrap and never see the, the light uh, of day or can actually, you not once yeah. you have it can you not let it go yeah well I think there's idea, there's a lot of ideas that I have in my head that for whatever reason and I end up not doing it in fact they keep coming back they creep back like oh that thing like like I did an entire workshop on the theme of writer's block that I've like never oh, actually done cool. every time I have a problem like maybe I could do the writer's block show but yeah. you know, so I'm gonna just no. put my foot here it's fine I, yeah, it's okay. it's, oh, they're, thank they're, you but you're like a little it's deep good, yeah, you know you're like yeah. ugh. um but so I would say, okay, first of all, I, do you mind my show? No, no, you no, do thing, not okay, at all. Okay, okay. We have two animals. Okay, uh. okay. Um, first of all, I think you kind of have to be um, passionately connected to your material, you know, and, mm-hmm. and in fact, uh, when we did Crystal, that was one of my realizations, actually going back to Paramore. Um, which I didn't, I didn't write the story of. And in fact, one of the issues with Paramore, I mean, uh, there are beautiful things about Paramore. I love Paramore. Yeah. But one of the issues with Paramore was it was, the story wasn't really strong. Yeah. And it one triangle it. So it was a love triangle at the core, but it was sort of just kind of, it felt really, and in fact, to be honest, we were doing this, we were, we were rehearsing the show, writing the script. And at one moment I looked around, I was like, does anybody, meaning the, the, designers the creators yeah. does anyone care like whose stories is does anyone care about the story because at least one of us has to feel like that's the story they want to tell and they're going to fight for it and they believe in it and it's their personal story whatever yeah. like someone has to be connected to it and i felt like it was just something that we were all just like you know it's like like random bones we were yeah. packing flesh onto this is what a broadway story i guess sir you know i mean there's reasons for it, which actually yeah. i shouldn't really blame anyone because it started out where they wanted to adapt iris so they were trying right. to find something that was similar to iris and then it just kind of was like one step after another mm-hmm. and it kept evolving but there wasn't a someone with an inspiration at the source yeah, playwright of it. At the heart there was no no playwright at the heart of it and then so when i was asked to do crystal and i was like okay it was right after paramore and i was like it's a nice show it's in an arena. It's Cirque du Soleil. Still, I have like I'm I'm going to commit to like doing something I care about, mm-hmm. being connected to it, and telling a story that, that would be. What's the story about? So it's about that's another like longer. Uh, uh, I don't know if I should answer the first question and then go back to that. <laughs> Wherever that's a detour. <laughs> Welcome um, to me and Josh. Yeah. We ask a billion questions. Yeah. Um, can I get back to that one? Because yes, that's yes. actually kind of a heavier thing, but. Um, Anyway, but that was like really my flash with Crystal. So no matter what, and in fact, even Cuisine is a good example where Seb and I co-directed it. And it was a little like we kind of, we just come out, like he just finished Sochi, I just finished Queen of the Night. We were both like, oh my God, we have to do another show. Uh, you know, like rehearsals are in three months, whatever. Um, and I remember just having a flash like, okay, you have to do stuff you're passionate about. And Seb was so passionate about food. Like that was really, he's, he cooks and he, that's what he thinks about all day at, at noon. He's like, what do you want to eat for dinner? And he's going shopping and he would joke about like wanting to quit circus and have a food truck. And so we're sitting in the kitchen and I just thought, well, you know, you have to do stuff you're passionate about. Like, can we do a show about food and cooking? And then I had the flash of, my grandmother, um, my, my stepdad's mom, had written a book called Young and Hungry, which was um, 
a memoir and a cookbook. And then I had another friend who had a blog, which was similar. So then, you know, the, the pieces came together. But just first of all, I, I believe like no matter what, it has to be something that you that resonates for you, that there's a bazillion stories that are really worth telling. And some, I'm mm. sure, in a way, way more worthwhile to tell, but aren't my stories. And mm. I'm not the person equipped to tell them. And it, there would be something unauthentic about me being the person to talk about, I don't know, being a Syrian refugee or, I mean, like, you yeah, know, that's whatever. not, right. that's not, yeah. I'm not, I mean, I would love to support that, but that's not like, I would be ill-equipped if right. I was, if I was a journalist, it's a different thing, but if I'm actually the one generating the material. Yeah. So I believe that really strongly. And then actually recently what I was sort of saying is it's like a Venn diagram. This is, I used to say it was two halves of a shell, but I realized there's a third part. So now I'm saying it's a Venn <laughs> diagram. But I think no matter what, because often we have our casts early on, mm-hmm. like we know who we want to work with. And that cast has a certain identity and energy and and story within them. And then there's like my own uh convictions, passions, preoccupations, which is another circle of it. And the third circle, I kind of feel like it's like the spidey sense of what is pertinent right now. Like it's not, I don't feel like that's, Mm -hmm. that's not a hundred percent. It's not like we need to tell, you know, we need to give the story, the world what they needs, but that, but you know, understanding what stories are kind of worth telling right Mm -hmm. now. And it's that little magical intersection of the three. And I think that that's like, I'm starting to kind of identify that, even though it was much more God, I keep hitting the mic. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Talk so much with my hands. But um, it's much more fluid in, in the feeling of it. But I remember with Traces, there was something that was very much, you know, it was not long after September 11th, which of course now feels very long ago. But there was a little of a sense of this crazy vulnerability in terms yes. of, you know, and and. Um, and then the guys and Eloise, they had this like rebellious, even though as humans, they weren't political or anything, but their the way of doing acrobatics was mm-hmm. rebellious and street and urban and all of that. Um, and very much this kind of carpe diem kind of youth. So it was sort of like finding the concept was really where the two halves of the shell met. Um, so that like, I don't like traces wouldn't have been traces if... It was a different cast. Like we, we might have still had those same convictions at that moment and same impulses of, you know, where where our imagination was going. But maybe without that cast, we wouldn't have gone specifically to that sort of intersection. Um, and I could give that example actually for every one of our shows. Um, I mean, often now I feel like in the case of Cuisine, for instance, I don't think the cast influenced the the concept of the show but the content of the mm-hmm, show sure. where we had the idea of the cooking and the memoirs but that kind of okay what stories are we telling within that whose memoirs and that's where I got their stories um, and then it influenced the flavor of the show mm-hmm. and the musics and everything Lynch. yeah <laughs> <laughs> flavor yeah so. Um, so so really is kind of kind of an intersection and I'm saying that for I should actually clarify for our signature shows or or the one you know the one mm-hmm. the ones that I can speak for that I've done in Seven Fingers um, when I'm Hired, you know, to do Crystal or Six Leg, you know, it's a whole different process because you have to write things a year before you work within their system. Well, yes and no. I try to, I try to do my system within their system. Um, (laughs) But it is true that you need you need a show finished and written before you start rehearsals because, you know, sets need to be built and video content needs to be made and casting. I mean, it's really the the element that the artist can actually influence your your um, theatrical direction is, you know, that's kind of not an issue. Then you want to cast like a, like a play you want to cast for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then during creation, no matter what, like for instance, again, the example of crystal, the character um, who played her Nobi, um, she like, her being influenced the role a bit and even the way I saw the role. Um, so that, that happens inevitably, but that didn't happen in day one when I was writing it. Right. So, yeah. 
So, yeah. so what, we, well, what is the story of Crystal? Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's connected to Crystal. Um, so, you know, Lindsay and I work together. We're married. Our two mm-hmm. most common creative partners are these choreographers, Keone and Mari, who are married. Mm-hmm. In circus, it's not so unusual to, you know, work with your husband or wife. But right. I think when we say it to the outside world, people are like, what? I know, how it's true. You, yeah. How so, could you possibly do that? And I that? always feel like, how could you not? I know. Like, that's... Yes. <laughs> I know, but, like, I can't really imagine not working yeah, together. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I'm wondering if, like, what you've learned about working with somebody yeah. who's your life partner and if there's, you know, wisdom you'd give us or other yeah. people who are, God, you know, so much. Um, I mean, first of all, I think seven, it depends, people, you know, people approach their work differently. Seven and I are both really passionate about our work and get really obsessive about it. So when we work together, it just, I, I love it because I feel like we just get to share 100% of what we are passionate and preoccupied about. And we're on different projects. It feels like, oh, God, I can't talk to you about this thing that I can't stop thinking about. <laughs> and so I, I love working with him and, and we t- kind of find a way, even if we're not co-directing, of just kind of getting each other involved anyway. Um, and back, you know, like I remember when I, when I was on Iris and I, I like got him hired as my assistant <laughs> for the five weeks we were in LA. I mean, just so that, you know, I, I mean, I, it wasn't just, I wanted him with me. Like I actually, gen- he's genuinely my go-to person where I feel like I'm working on something. I, I need Seb to come in and tell me what he thinks. You know, mm-hmm. it's really, I, I mean, I trust his, his skills and his, um, feedback but also his eye um also I, we complement each other really well mm-hmm. so i know that dynamic so there's that i mean there is a way it was really interesting where i think our particular dynamic obviously because we're like a mom and dad we become kind of mom and dad and everything that goes along with the mom role and the dad role so like I feel like what ends up happening when I co-direct with him is I'm sort of the one that everyone comes to with their <laughs> concerns and insecurities. And, you know, and I'm like, I always look at him. It's like, how come no, like, that's not fair. You get to, like, that's no all familiar, That's all exactly yeah. I know all the dance. We have uh, the show Beyond Babel. Yeah. It's, and, and it's 12 dancers. They're all like 19 to 20. Yeah. Other than the creators yeah. who are in the show. Yeah. They're our age. They're right. in their 30s. But everyone else is like young and they all come to yeah, me. Yeah, I know. Exactly, exactly. Like, I don't even know. And I didn't even realize it until, because he kept saying, oh, but it's because it's you opened the door to whatever. Uh-huh. And then when I was doing Passager, so Isabel, who's one of our fellow fingers, Isabel Chassé, she was assisting me. And, um, you know, and then it just kept happening where she'd come and she's like, oh, yeah, so-and-so mentioned they're worried about this. And I was like, wait, how come they're telling you? Like, I don't know who's talking to me. And I realized, like, oh, my God, I've become the dad. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm the scary one. Like, oh, and I sort of was sad about it. I thought, well, I mean, I guess on the one hand, I, you know, I mean, it's kind of exhausting when you have a lot of, you know, people that you, I mean, but um, but I, I like being the mom. So, um, but anyway, just to say that, like, when I'm working with Seb, I'm aware that we're two halves of a whole. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes you want to be the other half of the whole or the whole half of the whole. Mm-hmm. And um, and that goes to actually no matter who you create with. but Because there's also a creative compromise. There's scenes that he like really loves. And I'm like, oh, oh. <laughs> you know. Um, and then sometimes that's great. And actually I realize, oh, my God, he was right. And together we make it better. But there are other times when I, oh, I would have done it differently. Um, so actually when I did uh, Passager, I really came into it. I'd done so much co-directing. And I was like, you know, can I just do this alone? Mm-hmm. I just want to go in and he, he does things alone as well and feels mm-hmm. a similar, like I just get, get this to be, I, I have, I'm able to have this be a hundred percent my voice. And that's a nice feeling that said, I still prefer working with him, but it's just in terms of pros and cons. Um, but what I've realized is like, we need to, 
I, we need to keep each other in the loop. Like when it gets yeah. really, we're each on each other, like each on our own shows. It's just, there's too much of a gap. And I, you know, yeah. I like having a marriage. Do you guys find marriage? that when yeah. things are really good, you're like hyped off on others' energy and that when things are bad, you are, yeah. you cycle downwards? Or do you find, because you don't necessarily, for a regular person, yeah. day job goes badly, you go home and you complain yeah. about whatever to somebody right, else. Right. But then when it's happening, your job is, the, the negative thing yeah. happens to both of you. What's well, interesting negative. So for instance, if there's like a creative problem, we kind of just get really in like this sort of fun problem solve mode. We're like, oh shit, how are we going to do it? Like, okay, we don't, we can't get the thing on in time, you know? So we go home and we obsess about it, but really sort of in this, we, we sort of feed on, on finding a solution, which is fun when it's the things that kill us are human things. Yeah. When someone is not happy, mm-hmm. that's like when I find out like, oh, so-and-so they, they're not happy in the show da, da, da. and then I'll just go home and like it's like a knife in the heart yeah. and then and then we actually can't get past it because we're both experiencing it yeah. and there's not the other one to be like ah, it's fine it's you right. know um and even sometimes or we won't agree on it and then that makes it worse because it's you know um and that's I think that's always the case like he yeah I mean, I could give a bazillion examples, yeah. but it's, you know, somewhere like you have a, one of your designers who, you know, it's not going well and yeah. they're unhappy. You know, it's, yeah, it's yeah, actually, it's yeah. like a man, it's more of a management thing of, you know, like, like having people that you want to keep. Right. Happy. happy. <laughs> because people will love yeah. you. And then also it's always your fault too when they're yeah, unhappy. I know. And even, yeah, I know. It's hard. such a hard thing. It's such a hard, and especially what, I mean, creatively, what I find hard is sometimes people aren't happy because creatively they're not happy. And then it's like, what's hard is you really believe in it and they don't. So yeah. it's, oh my God, I don't understand how I want them to, you know, again, all of our shows, I want the, the cast, it's one of the goals is they feel it's theirs mm-hmm. and they have just as much connection and conviction and, and mm-hmm. ownership. Um, so when that doesn't happen, it's, I feel like, oh, I've done something wrong. Like that's yeah. really my first yeah. thing. Okay. I'm not doing my job right. If that's what's going on. Um, and then other times it's like stuff that is, you know, whatever administrative or business, however you want to say it, that's actually doesn't come directly from us, but because it's our company, I, I'm the, the face of it I'm all. the face of it all. And then it's like, I have to defend something that I really don't want to defend right. or don't understand even right. sometimes. And that actually just tears me up. Cause then I'm in this position of like kind of helplessness, but still I'm the bad guy. And right. So that's, I, that's like just the downfall of running a company. So the two moments in, Passenger or passenger. Yeah. Um, that I... Can I say a note about why we have the two names? Yes, yeah. please. So we chose the French passenger, partly because I think there was another show already called Passengers. And there's a movie and stuff. <laughs> yeah. where we don't want confusion. But also I liked that in French, there's the word passage in it. And I felt like the symbolism, mm-hmm. I mean, it literally means passenger, but the symbolism of a passing and a passage, I liked better. When we and so we said no matter what we're going to keep it passager. When we got to Boston, they were it was the first time we were in American City. They said I think people are going to think it's like a typo. Like I don't think that's yeah. So they switched it, but it's been a year we've been calling it passager, even if we're speaking English. So I just I feel like schizophrenic about oh, yeah. it. I'm not yeah. sure what I should call well, it. Well, and then I at the top of yeah. the show with the yeah. with the projection and it says passager, right? Yeah. And then I was like. Wait, did I misread that? And then I looked. I was like, "How do you spell passenger?" And then I looked at the playbill, and I had yeah. a whole moment at the top of the show of like, "What is the word?" I know we should maybe clarify that. No, I mean, I. Yeah. But it was good because it made me actually really think about the mm-hmm. two words. Right. Yeah. So okay, I was so like, perfect. "Okay, great." Yeah. But the two moments in in that show that I just were like like felt something so mm-hmm. like visceral was the whole, entire Chinese pull act. 
what Josh and I were like, that was the most beautiful because there was something so different about his movement quality. Mm-hmm. You know, I think maybe probably because yeah, he doesn't come from ENC and yeah. so the way he interacts with the pole is just yeah. so different and is like only drop is like at the end mm-hmm. and it's a different style of drop than you normally see. Yeah, and like, yeah, yeah. I, I just like loved that yeah. piece so much. And then the other part was it's such a random moment, but right before like at the top of Russian cradle, mm-hmm. And he's like standing on the, I don't know what you call it. The, the cradle? The cradle. Yeah. <laughs> and like looking out in the audience. And then he just like jumps yeah. into the first yeah. moment. Yeah, like yeah, it was yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. So like what was going on? Like when you created those like yeah. two. So those are like super different examples, which is great because <laughs> yeah. actually the pole, I really like movement wise and stuff. That's him. Like I don't, oh I God. take no credit for that. Like he really had, that's sort of what I was saying about this cast. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, there's some numbers, it's much more hands-on, but that was like, he has his, his style yeah. of movement. He's very I'm going to say nerdy about pole in the sense that he wants you to do see, things that yeah. are original and not mm-hmm. the typical drops and challenge himself. And um, so, I mean, it's him. It's him with the, you know, we sort of decided it would be, you know, whoop, sorry, touch okay. it again. You know, this concept, I originally called it laying tracks that it was, mm-hmm. you know, in all of our different explorations of the themes of trains, like really kind of talking about the tracks. Origi- I mean, so. I had him on the cast, adored him, but I actually felt like, oh, you know, I didn't necessarily want Paul on the show because mm-hmm. I was trying to do different disciplines than we've done in the past. And, you know, we don't usually, you know, we've never had wire or cradle and yeah. I mean, barely hula hoop. So I remember thinking, oh God, another pole act. Like, oh, you know, we've done so many pole acts. <laughs> and you guys have all the best pole acts. Oh, well, that's good. Maybe that's why. Maybe it's <laughs> good know. we keep doing them because we keep trying to like, you know, yeah. innovate. Yeah. So, yeah. Catch up. I think the traces, duo, the two poles. Yeah. Yeah. No, and intercession. Like, I don't remember her name. Will and Elo. Will and Elo, yeah. Well, I guess I guess that's a good thing about doing it all the time. Is yeah, <laughs> you get the best um, out. Yeah, <laughs> but um, anyway, so I, I knew I wanted it to be a video heavy moment, mm-hmm. but it was a little bit less. Like there was like basically I kind of scripted pretty much the whole show, inter- and then there were details that mm-hmm. kind of evolved within it. But that was one moment where okay, video moment. He he was in Australia and couldn't do the workshop. So I hadn't actually worked with him to see sort of where are we going with this. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit more of a question mark around it. And then, um, you know, we sort of had this idea of, you know, filming him on the railroad tracks to do the interactive stuff and then having a personal story. Mm-hmm. And what was really interesting was, you know, I wanted sort of like we'd done in cuisine with Melvin and Sydney. I like this idea of the voiceover yeah, really of his nice thoughts. Um, and he was, was working on the pole and we were kind of watching him and then he came down and I just, he was, you know, out of breath, had just finished training. And I said, so do you have any, I was having a conversation with him. Do you have any like stories about, you know, train stories? And, and he starts telling the story about walking on the track. So I take out my phone and just start recording him. And it's completely spontaneous. And that's why even in the track, you actually hear me laugh, uh, you know, it's, yeah. um, and he's telling the stories about walking on the tracks. And then our composer took it and put it on the soundtrack. And what was really interesting was afterwards we tried, you know, it was horrible quality. It was like on a phone and he was out of breath and he wasn't articulating necessarily. Nah, nah, nah. So we tried to get him to record it again, like in a sound studio. Couldn't catch the quality. You couldn't catch the quality. It sounded so scripted. Yeah. So we, we've kept like the version of the show is the little iPhone, oh, cool. him out of breath, spontaneous yeah. version. So it really was like that sense of like someone just, you know, telling a story. Oh, was that authentic? What's yeah. the, the, there's a phrase that like repeats a few times. A balance along text. Yeah, just balance, balance along. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I was like, oh, I love how it also became like melodic with yeah, his yeah. words. Yeah, and that's our, our composer is great yeah. in that way. Um, yeah, and there were a few things like that that, you know, that was one of those moments which happens so often in creation where it's just like, oh, this 
like intersects perfectly. Amazing that you have a story, the real story about walking along tracks. And we're, we're I mean, it just sort of felt like, does it like what a happy coincidence, meant but it meant to be. And so actually in terms of his movement quality, you know, he sort of explored around the themes of, you know, the walking on the tracks mm-hmm. and, and all of this. You know, we do a lot of these eyes in the show. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's like came out in one of the improvs when we were trying to explore train movements. And, you know, that thing right. of when you're when you're, you know, have you ever watched someone at a train window and their eyes do this? Because they're like, <laughs> so I you can't catch it on the, but, you know, the back the quick back and forth thing. Um, so we explore that a lot in, in the show. So he was sort of using that feeling uh-huh. and oh, adding that to his, that. that's all that. And yeah. so he kind of took the themes and put it in his movement. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that is actually, I, I'm so happy. People love that act, but it was one of the ones that was kind of the latest to solidify also because... We it was kind of a miscommunication with our video guy where we thought he was going to give us like content yeah. that then we were going to figure out how to build the act and like interact with the video context. We wanted to be really interactive. Mm. And then he was like waiting for the number to be built so he could create. We kind of had this oh, weird yeah. chicken and egg thing. And then finally just said, you know, let's make an act and we'll do the filming and he'll, you know, so um it was much less like this, like, uh, you know, vision and moving. It was really a little bit more coming mm-hmm. together from all the angles. So I'm, I actually, I'm so happy that, that it's, 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 <laughs> right. it's, it's a beautiful act. I really, I love yes. it. Um, and then the cradle, the, um, what, did you guys know Rafael Cruz? You yes. Know? Okay. Actually, we were so, I like feel so lucky to have met him because I'd seen him in Intercession and like, uh, you know, just knew about mm-hmm. him. And Joran Dawson was in one of our shows, right, Slumber, uh-huh. and we brought it to uh, Australia in Adelaide. Mm-hmm. And Raph was there. Right, yeah. And hung yeah, out with us a lot. Yeah. And I was like, he, you know, he was so, so awesome. And we yeah. joked that we were like sorority sisters because he kept like, <laughs> and yeah. I was just like, you're so cool. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I feel really happy to have met him. Yeah, that's great. That's yeah. Nice. I know everyone sort of has the same like. No, he's just like that light, you know. Everyone's like, "Oh, we had the special bond yeah. or something." You just had that ability right? and like with I everybody. We like hung out with him for like a yeah. week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For Joran and, yeah. and Josh's wedding, and like oh, you know. He uses music in the show. So basically, yeah. So I mean, he was he was a very 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 yeah. close friend and kind of like I mean almost like my son in that he yeah. That, friend i mean it, it's you know right. he but he lived in our house when he came he was 15 when he came i mean i knew him since he was six you know back and forth sometimes you know worked with him at circus center when i'd come back into town when he was 15 we brought all the boy brought them but encouraged them to come to the school and then took them in under our wings in the house so they lived in the house and then raf you know he was 15 so he basically lived in our house for like seven years and then obviously went on to create all these shows with him and then he became sort of my number one creative um, mm. partner. And I had him as my assistant on Paramore, in right. addition to being, you know, sort of my closest friend anyway. Um, very, very close friend. So, and as you know, it was really sudden and unexpected. So I had had the idea for Passage, the, the trains and all of mm. that. I didn't really know where I was going to go with it. I liked sort of the aesthetic universe. Mm. I kind of was imagining something that was a little bit more like Strangers on a Train or, mm. you know, Murder on the Orient Express where everyone had a character and... But I, you know, I, I knew, like I said, it's sort of with the workshops and the, the Venn diagram, like I sort of knew it was going to come together, but didn't necessarily know. And then, um, and then he, he passed away and it was. So you had the idea. Had the idea before. 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 And, and I even had you, to write a did little. Did you talk about it with Raph? Actually, I don't think so. Okay. But it was really, because it was just a few months. I think that was when I was, oh God, I'm trying to think of the timeline here. I was still doing Crystal when I had mm-hmm. to start writing. And he assisted us on Crystal as right, well. Right. So like he'd been, you know, like I said, a very close, like kind of almost every project I've done, he'd been involved in other than like sequence eight, but it was because he was still performing on Iris. So I was mm-hmm. actually still working with him. I just, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, really. Um, 
So, so I'd had to write, I might actually, I might even have told about the trains. I don't remember, but I had to write a description early on, which was very vague about, you know, departures and arrivals. And, um, but then that, so that Feb, that January he passed away. And then I had that February, I had workshops right away for the show. And I just was like, I cannot function. I don't know how I'm going to do this. And right. I'm grieving. And it's all my imagination would only go into like, can you improv about saying goodbye? And yeah, you know, right, it was really right. like, everything was so like melancholic and everything um so at one moment I I really was kind of in a crisis like I don't know I'm gonna have to I'm gonna create this show and realized obviously first of all I had to I had to use it in the sense like yeah. I had to kind of process it through creating and made a decision that I was gonna you know create the show as as an homage to him um use his music so that was part of it was that he had sent us a piece of music so basically when he was 19, when he was on Traces and he still lived in the house um, and was a great pianist. And uh, and we and we were creating our show La Vie. So it was like 2007. Mm-hmm. And we said, oh, Raph, you, sh- you should compose a song for it. You know, you're... so he he wrote a song for La Vie. And then after and every one of our shows, he'd write at least one song. Um, I can't believe he was so talented. So and then talented. also he played, you know, for Joshua and Jordan's like wedding. And I was like, and you play. Oh, he plays everything. Are I you mean, kidding? Well, you know, his mom, he grew up. So that was actually his mother. You know, she runs a choir. And the one thing she did was she wouldn't let them quit piano until like when they were Smart. 18. <laughs> yeah. They When they're 18, they were allowed to. But at that point, they didn't want to. But they if actually that was the condition of continuing acrobatics was if it was they had to also continue piano, oh which I'm sure she didn't want them to quit acrobatics either. But, you know, that was right. sort of her. So um, so anyway, so he would compose songs for us. And and uh, and then when we were doing Crystal, we as usual, we said, hey, yeah, write a song for Crystal. And and then as we were so he sent us something an e- in an email from Australia, actually. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. Fair. So maybe it was right around there. I think probably, and what's sad is yeah. that we were supposed to have him on the podcast. Oh, but then. Right. His travel plans got right. messed up, and yeah. he was joking. He was like, "Oh, I'll be number, you know, five hundred and eighty-seven of your park of your podcast." Yeah. And you know, obviously, like, yeah, so fun, yeah. yeah, it's too bad yeah. that he we didn't get him. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, so he sent us this music, and then um, with Crystal, we realized you know, we had the composer. Um, beautiful composer mm-hmm. and Maxim and we realized okay well actually because of the theme it makes more sense to have one composer it's not yeah. the kind of show where we're just going to add you know so we actually you know we explained her off and he was like, yeah cool, cool and then he came and like I said he assisted us um but we never opened I'd never opened the email with oh. the music in it and then after he died I kind of remembered that he'd sent us the song and so it was like literally the day after we had the news that we were listening and it's like him playing piano and it's this melody that as far as I know, no one else heard. I mean, who knows? Maybe, you know, who we played for someone, but, um, but you know, and so, I mean, I really associate the song with that moment. It went like Seb just kept playing it in a loop, the music to a point. Sometimes I was like, you have to turn off Raph's music. And, um, but then I asked Colin, our composer for Passager, uh, I said, can we can we use that as the as the theme mm-hmm. of the show, as the melodic theme? Can we use Raph's music? So um, the opening piece is his song and he created, you know, like we talked about, you know, having the train rhythms and this whole and I and the build that was mm-hmm. appropriate, the the wire, it's that melody and the epilogue. So it's like three different moments in the show. Um, so. Uh, anyway, so, so it was sort of the show for Raph and that, and I realized in a way, like, I was like, how, how can I create a show about such and such when I'm dealing with grieving and suddenly I realized, well, in a way it's like a perfect theme. It's mm-hmm. about, it you know, this like, you know, the, the, the train ride that is life that goes too fast and is sometimes cut short and we have yeah. beautiful connections along the way, but 
there's not necessarily a rhyme or reason to where we, you know, the destination, yeah. all of that. So, and in fact, the last text that Serrano says about we're raised on stories, beginning, middles, and end. He says, you know, mm-hmm. some, you know, stories we weren't prepared to, prepared for. Yeah. That just stop mid-sentence. Well, I like that. Um, and then the sound cuts yeah, out. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that was actually something I wrote that wasn't supposed to be for the show. It was right after Raph died, where I just kind of wrote this thing. Because I kept realizing what was, I mean, among many things, one thing that I just kept getting hung up on was that, like, like just the, the arc of his mm-hmm. life, it just cut in the middle. Like it was just yeah, like yeah. how, like he so wasn't shocking. prepared and yeah. we weren't prepared. And yeah. you know, the people that I, you know, my, my grandmother died in her nineties and you know, you just, I mean, obviously, ready for it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure that, I mean, there's tons of stories that are similar to Raph and I don't, you yeah. know, but yeah. I hadn't myself like lived that sense of like, uh, just in the middle of something. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I wrote that and then, uh, and then at one moment, you know, asked, asked Serrano to read it. And actually it was the cast that had the idea of like stopping when he said stop. Uh, um, and uh, and then I had this flash one day about, uh, you know, everyone being on the train. And I mean, and Raph, I mean, it, it's, it was it's Louis in the show, but just basically saying, like, I have to get off now. Mm-hmm. And like everyone else has to stay on the train and he has to leave the train. I just sort of saw this. I almost saw him like leaving the train and us all just like looking at him as he yeah. leaves. So that was what Cradle became. And, um, and that, you know, and so, and, you know, whether or not it's like he's, his soul is flying in the air. The other thing that ended up happening as we were creating it, just because of the height, was it sometimes read like a, like suicide. And there's, Mm. you know, people who jump in front of train tracks and stuff. So some people sort of saw that. And at one moment I thought, well, you know, maybe the ambiguity there is also, Mm. okay, it's not my personal story about Raph, but it's also something that's like very Mm. kind of a, a powerful image so and the fact that he kind of brings him back to earth at the end um so anyway but it is you know the whole mm-hmm. number the cradle act is really you know we've kind of had this arc in the show where it's like departures we're going somewhere we're in the train we're in transit now we're you know it's the whole dreamy surreal landscape mm-hmm. we're out on thing and then suddenly it's like you know sometimes you don't arrive anywhere mm-hmm. and then there's the act so my feeling about yeah. when he jumps yeah. like obviously physically it's this great thing but I mean, they're very much aware of the subtext. And so I feel when he jumps there, it is so charged with emotion mm-hmm. than it would be if you just watch any old cradle act yes. and they jump. Yeah. And yet it's a simple jump. It's yeah. really, but it's but it was yeah. so, I mean, that was to me the yeah. most impactful moment. I, that was the yeah. first thing I said. But it's interesting because I felt it as such a like a calm, like, I don't know, like a calm and beautiful moment yeah. and not like a sad, like, I don't know. It felt like hopeful in yeah, some way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, that's, it's so funny because sometimes I, I see it and I think original, like I said, my original vision was more sort of this, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what his soul is doing, but just right. kind of the sense that it's, you know, it's, it's rough and he's flipping around in the air <laughs> yeah. and, um, and yet the, 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 the pain of, you know, of having the. I mean, even if it's just for us, but, um, but I think that it is interpreted different ways. And I kind of feel like that's okay mm-hmm. that it can be interpreted different ways. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, clearly it's a, yeah. it's a powerful moment. Yeah. You know, if that's like the, the tiniest little thing where, where literally no one's doing anything, yeah. except he's moving, you yeah. know, it's not even a trick clearly like, yeah. you know, that moment. And the music, I mean, Colin did, so, it's funny cause he, um, again, the composer, there were so many, I was very, I was a bit like, Two Hamill, two hands on, like in every every track of the show. I knew exactly what I wanted. I gave an inspiration track. I don't know. Can we have the drums here, or whatever? And then I got to Cradle, and it was similar. Where I had to get an idea, and he said, "Can you just let me 
propose something. (laughs) And he just wrote that completely from scratch, like based on nothing I asked him. And it was like, oh my gosh. Okay, this is gorgeous. I should I should let you do that more often. <laughs> That's amazing. I also thought that um, the the um, oh my God hoop diving act yeah. in Cuisine Confessions was also like yeah. you know one of those moments where you're just like wow that's really yeah, you know great. powerful yeah, yeah, yeah when their stories were really powerful yeah. and then they're powerful performers it's like yeah yes. so having yeah. directed shows that are on Broadway shows yeah. that tour the U S tour Europe <laughs> the Olympics. Cirque du Soleil shows. What's like on your bucket list of like kinds of projects you still want to do? Gosh. Well, I mean, ultimate bucket list. I feel like there's, I think I have not yet done the fusion of a play, a real play mixed with acrobatic language the way I would want to do it. I feel like every time that's come on the table, um, it's not necessarily hundred percent my project or you know something that i like the fusion of circus isn't necessarily used in the way i would want it to be used um so i feel like that's the thing that my brain keeps coming back to Mm. partly from starting in theater also i really am i'm the daughter of writers like i like words um and i love the physical language and maybe just because i'm getting older i'm wanting more and more to do something that's like an actual script as Mm. well as the physical script um so i don't know to what extent i also really love that circus I love that circus and acrobatics is not used to represent circus and acrobatics. And quite often the, you know, the musicals yeah. and the plays, it's sort of like it's in a circus-y context. It's a great example of that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, and, I, and I, I, I love sort of more the Greek chorus feel of it's like a, a physical language that gets acrobatic, but it's to it's metaphorical. Mm-hmm. And um, so definitely I kind of keep gravitating towards what that play is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my best friend, um, the one I'm staying with now, and she's an actress and playwright and stuff. And we often are brainstorming on, oh, when are we going to work together? And so I think that's kind of my, that's the thing that kind of keeps calling at me. I mean, there's other things that, that I'd like to do. I mean, I'd also like to do another Broadway show just cause I felt like it was really interesting. I mean, that happened, it's funny, even with the eye show, I'll do with a project where I feel like I learn a lot and then I kind of like itch to do another one to, to apply what I've learned. Right. So actually after Crystal right away, I was like, I got to do another eye show because this, you know, now I feel that less, yeah. but there's something about like, kind of yeah. like going, Oh, now I really see what I want to do with it. And I feel similarly about, about Broadway shows. Um, I don't know. I mean, I really, uh, I like the fusion of yeah. it, you know, of it all. And now, even as I say that, I feel like there's fusiony things that I, you know, haven't even thought of yet, but just kind of keeping moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I've often very early on, I wanted to do something that was much more like, um, a documentary about the actual people, just cause I've always been you know, actual circus people, they just have these like crazy stories, crazy stories amazing yeah. lives. So yeah. like inspiring. And like, we kind of had an inch of that with cuisine, but, um, I, like early on, I just wanted to do something that was so matter of fact where it's, you know, it's like this, it's like a podcast. Right. We're doing an interview. We really get to know the person and that their performance is somehow, I mean, in, in a very matter of fact way integrated. So we kind of get to know the person and then see. So that's something that I thought, like I had that dream back when I was at Cirque actually, yeah. just cause I was thinking I'd meet, I don't know, Dasha. And it's like, yeah, she's beautiful on stage. But when you know her and the yeah. life she's had, then it's really like, wow. Okay. This is an amazing person. Um, so yeah, I feel like there's something I'd like to do with that. And I even feel like my love for circus, I get this frustration of how non-circus people 
don't really get the real like beauty of I know. the form, the lifestyle, the mm-hmm. dedication, just so much about it. And I kind of almost feel like despite what I said about not wanting to use circus to represent circus, I'd love to use circus to represent real circus, like yeah. to do something mm-hmm. about what, you know, the soul of what I consider real circus is. Um, do you feel like you'd ever do a project where you try to reinvent classical circus or is that too- like, uh, like traditional classical? Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe. I feel like it's all that's that's more been done and, and being being done. It's really interesting because I don't have as much the connection with traditional circus. I, I I mean, pickles in one way, like I think of it now and I guess, you know, in a way it was traditional. We wore fishnet stockings mm-hmm. and we put up sidewall and bleachers and we were in a ring and all that stuff. And yet at the time it was considered... I mean, the word contemporary circus didn't exist yet, but it was, you know, European style. And I think we're even considered part of the new circus movement um, because it was one ring, because it was intimate and no animals and all of that. So even then when I started, because like I said, what appealed to me was like the theatricality, the the theater in it Mm -hmm. um, and how innovative it was. So that was already where my mind was going. So I don't have, I, I have a deep love for traditional circus, but I don't have my personal nostalgia for it. Um, I worked with Circus Flora where I, you know, I was, it's just a few months where I came in on a horse and played poker with an elephant and all. And I, I'm so nice. happy I did that. And there were Willendas in the cast. Yeah. And I mean, I'm re- I really I adored Cecil it. Cecil McKinnon's going to be the guest after. Oh, you. super great. Yeah. Great, great. Yeah, that's nice. No, and I adored it, but I don't, I don't feel like right. that's like, that's not the, it's not what's in my blood in the same way. It was yeah. my, I felt like yeah. a visitor, you know. Do you feel like, because to me, I, um, it's ex- an exciting moment, I think, in America uh, to see like what the next version of American circus mm-hmm, is uh, mm-hmm. for today. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of the stuff that people see as contemporary circus is really from, you know, not, not America. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's, it, it's interesting to see where it's going to go. Yeah, where yeah. do you think it's going just generally speaking? Gosh, I don't know. Um there I have a there's a weird thing where I feel like on the one hand it's kind of everywhere. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand there's like the the so actually it's really interesting someone asked i i was going to do an interview a few months ago where i knew the theme was like the evolution of circus and and i was sort of preparing myself and i realized you know i feel like you know, in terms of innovating and mm-hmm. even like what we consider now really contemporary, like some of that was being done in the 50s or whatever, right. you know, but the main thing that's changed, I mean, obviously apparatus have been built and aesthetics have changed, but the main thing that's changed is the perception. Mm-hmm. And that's what it, like the how rapidly that's shifting mm-hmm. um, and it, to a point where I'm not even sure like I can keep up with what the percent, you know, it really yeah. I mean, it happened first. There was this like. Um, movement towards credibility, like with Cirque du Soleil and everything. Um, and then there was this sense, like anyone, not anyone can do it, but there was this weird. Yes. Um, it's like a, a, there was an accessibility where, yeah. you know, pink is doing tissue. And, and then it was like a strange, I've, I've worked on shows where it was actually disturbing, where they just thought, oh, can you teach the dancer to walk on the wire? And, you know, where <laughs> yeah, suddenly, yeah. okay, people really don't understand. Yes. And there's a moment, um, have you seen, um, uh, Moulin Rouge on Broadway yet? Uh, no, but Gypsy worked on it. Oh, yeah, did she yeah. help with the silks? The aerial, there's yeah, an aerial there's thing. There's an aerial yeah, moment, yeah. And, yeah. I, and I said, I wonder if yeah. some, if Alex Timbers was just like, we want silks, or right, if it was right. like a more... I mean, actually, you should ask her. I know yeah. that she was approached to do the aerial design, yeah. but I don't know if she chose the apparatus or if they had, and then she right. had to just sort of work with them. Yeah. Um, 
you got to work a trapeze and Mulan. Well, there's yeah, a trapeze exactly. moment. Yeah, it comes yeah, down, but, you know, she doesn't be, do anything. Yeah, I, I don't. So anyway, so I'm not really sure. Like so yeah. but, um, but, you know, so there is this weird way, and I feel particularly in New York and the, the Broadway scene where they have a weird love-hate thing with circus where they're suddenly wanting it more and more in their shows and yet have this weird disdain for it. Yeah. And, and crazy misconception of mm-hmm. what you know what like I said what the heart of it is and actually I just I just wrote a Facebook post but I did I just wrote a whole thing um about that particularly about people not getting yeah. it and thinking that you know spotlight and glory right. and it's like it's about these mini societies we create where you know what I wrote is where we where we catch each other and you know mm-hmm. from high places and it's really right. you know that aspect of it just so um, culturally fundamentally different yeah well, Broadway and, is I mean yeah Broadway the whole Broadway community in the yeah. sense of like circus is small Broadway yeah. is so small and it's like you're an outsider yeah and like oh yeah there's this that dancer too. can do yeah and this, there's like a yeah. hierarchy of forms I mean one of the things that, that kind of bothered me on Paramore which even though I was the first to kind of criticize the story didn't really have bones it was like there was this implication this hierarchy of forms that if the story like the, they would talk about circus like spectacle and yeah. I was like okay f- first of all it's it's very it, it's art it is yeah. and the the creativity and the and all of that that goes into it is at least at least at the same level as the brilliance that goes behind writing a good script i mean right. really at least and on top of it we're talking about people where there's literally a handful of people in the world can who can do what you're in. It's like, and to dismiss it like, oh, he's jumping on the teeter board when instead the character, you know, and I sort of mm-hmm. felt like, mm-hmm. okay, I get it as, as a form to be a Broadway show. That's a weakness, but please don't dismiss the fact that you're watching someone do something that only one person in the world can do. Right. Yeah. We see, we see the, the, sort of this theme come up yeah. all the time. Like, so the dance style that we have been working in is like a contemporary version of urban dance. And there's a couple of choreographers who are amazing at it. And one just got hired to work on a musical as the associate choreographer right. to help make it look more like urban dance as opposed to jazz, which yeah. is what the main choreographer's style is. And she got all of her best students and best dancers to come and audition for this thing. Yeah. And they were like, no, those people sing. They can't sing. And yeah. it's like, but then didn't you want this style right. of dance? Yeah, yeah. Like the prioritization of vocals yeah, before exactly. any other yeah. skill and there's a you know. funny thing where I think also because the the theater people here they're actually not well versed in circus so they get no. actually they get distracted by the mechanics mm-hmm. and it's like yeah but why would he call it's like I mean you could say that back then like why would he tap dance right now that makes no sense right. but it's like we're you're used to that language so yeah. for you it makes yeah. sense that someone right. goes you know just erupts into song right. but that's not necessarily that you know that was a step that was right. made as the art started to fuse and fuse um and you know and for us when we watch if someone's expressing themselves through climbing a pole like it's it's a form of expression and right. we see it especially when that link is made yes, sometimes yes. the person's doing it in a way that's not expressive but i feel like they get so caught up in the fact that they they're witnessing for the first time someone sliding off a pole and almost hitting their head that they get too distracted yeah, in a way yeah and the mechanics are like preoccupying them i mean it's funny the other thing just back to also about not getting it but um, one of the reasons I, I, I wrote yesterday what I did was that our the artistic director, David Dower at Arts Emerson, I don't know if you were there one of the nights he gives a speech before the show. We were, yes. we were actually. Okay, so yeah. he's really, you know, and he's so just... Um, in love with you guys. Well, no, but I mean, really, but just um, in love with circus, contemporary yeah, circus. Yes. And he, his speech about, like, there's no, there's no better way to, to demonstrate our interdependence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and just realizing, you know, what I was saying was that, like, I, you know, I create these shows where so often I'm like, oh, man, why did I put everyone in every scene and create these tricks that take, I mean, I don't always create the tricks, I'm as the cast is, but you know what I mean? Like, 
like take every single member to make them happen and then you just have this really vulnerable show because someone's injured and everything's right, changed right. and and it's oh my god I shouldn't do this to myself and next time just have solo acts you know whatever mm-hmm. and then after he was doing the speech I, I realized no that's ex- I mean of course like that's that's what it's about and yeah. even if it's a vulnerable show and even if we have to change it when someone's injured the point of what we're doing is that interdependence and that's why anyone who does circus that's why we do it mm-hmm. is the fact that we are in a in a metier where we where we like i say throw each other and stand on each other's shoulders and catch each other and um and back to the theater thing it's like i feel like the thing of referring to it as spectacle and the sensationalism of it which of course the effect is often that and that's fantastic but just understanding the heart of the work and where Mm -hmm. it comes from so all of this to say about the kind of show i'd one day want to create like i do feel like I, I want to be able to speak for the circus arts yeah. at some point and, and do it in a show, which is my kind of form of speaking, yeah. I guess. But. Well, I always feel like, you know, the best musicals are... The worst musicals are when you feel like the song, breaking into song doesn't feel justified, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Because it has to be a moment in this character where it's like he, they cannot say what they want to say anymore. They have to sing it, right? Yeah, they have to. Exactly. It could be exactly. a funny moment yeah. or whatever, but it has to be like yeah. the internal moment of yeah. this this part of the show. The song helps us tell the story that we couldn't do when we were saying it. It's like, exactly. thank God we can sing it's it because like, that's oh. the only way to tell that. Right, yeah, and exactly. you feel like, oh my God, yeah. thank God. Yeah. And I do feel like circus can be that, you yeah. know, when it's that part of the show where you're just like, I need to be flown up exactly. into the air. Like, yeah. I need to. And there were two times in Passengers where I was like, Oh, it would be amazing if someone started singing right now. Yeah. And then they did. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. my God, I call. You know, I was like, yeah. this is perfect. Because That's it so felt great. like it yeah. was a moment that needed yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, it came. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. oh, my God. But I do, I, I mean, we've talked about this mm-hmm. ad nauseum, but I do feel mm-hmm. like we always feel like the circus can be can be that moment of song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I don't know if I, yeah. like, anyone under... Like a, a yeah. traditional theater yeah. playwright yeah, it sees, sees it that, that way. Yeah, I know. You know, and, and that's one of the problems with when traditional directors direct circus is they don't see their imagination doesn't work that way about right. circus, so they superimpose a story in parallel to a bunch of acts and right. yet the acts are like the core of yeah. the show so there's a, an inherent disconnect yes. um, it's interesting about this this song like what you were saying about again the hierarchy that you know often you'll have uh, like in a Broadway show the, the main character like doesn't necessarily dance that well but they'll no. do choreographies but they're not like a you know, and Alvin Ailey, you know, whatever, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's like, we accept it because that's right. part of the, yeah. the fusion of the point. And I feel, I feel that way about, like, I, I always want people to sing in our shows. We're super lucky in Passage that we have like Mode and Freya have beautiful yeah. voices, but we've done, you know, traces where we make them sing and they're not always good singers. Yeah. And, but I feel like for the three dimensionality of mm-hmm. it, like to actually hear a voice come out of a yeah. body is yeah. so critical yes and to just reduce it to like we can only do things that are excellent right <laughs> as opposed to something that actually might speak even if it's not in its most excellent form and I think I mean for me it's it's worth it I mean obviously you know you don't want to hear anyone singing off tune in a musical but to have that if there's something if the if there's you know right. to be able to to have both worlds is mm-hmm. worth it so oh, yeah. yeah well the, the, the dancers we the dress rehearsal we tried it where they just you know it's a two-hour show dance totally through Mm -hmm. story Mm -hmm. and then you know the base of the story is Romeo and Juliet with the modern context of this community people being divided by a wall Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. like Josh is an immigrant he got he was American at 19 Mm -hmm. so the story feels you know Mm -hmm. close and Mm -hmm. just like 
the physical or metaphysical border of like barrier, not being able to do something that you want or love or whatever. But it's all, you know, dance. They didn't talk at all the first, you know, run through. And it felt really weird because they were like pantomiming, being angry at each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they're like, that felt really awkward and so uncomfortable. Like maybe just like try to say what you're yeah. expressing yeah. and they start talking and then like I was like oh thank god yeah, like exactly. as an audience right, person right, you're right, like thank, right. thank god yeah. this feels so much less awkward and now yeah. like 125 shows later they're like have all these moments that they've like, like lines like that lines that they've created and yeah. like you know they're obviously not playwrights or actors mm-hmm. but it does feel yeah. like so much nicer it's fully integrated yeah, yeah than being exactly. like oh well yeah. you can't act or you're not you know you're yeah. not playwrights we can't yeah, talk exactly. <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but it is like the, the like yeah. core of like theater is like driven into so hard of like this is what you do if you're not an actor you don't yeah you know, exactly. if you're a dancer this is your role yeah well, exactly, the role of the yeah. playwright is also part of the role of the circus performer yeah, which yeah. Is a little bit different yeah exactly yeah no it is well and 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 of the director that's one of yeah. the things that I, I often tell people I didn't it never really occurred to me until I started working a little bit more in theater at now like yeah. after circus um, how much oh yeah directors don't they don't write their shows no. No. you know they're taking a material and interpreting it and yeah. you know staging it and I really felt like god our jobs are hard like we start from a blank page yeah. and yeah. have to sort of not only sort of direct and, and be a captain in that sense and that right. vision but also like as you go like really like you know uh, I'm trying, I'm like, imagine what, what do you call it when you carve out the, the big block of, you know, Oh, sculpting. Sculpt, okay. I guess. Sculpt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have, yeah. You have to sculpt as you go, but, um, no, I mean, it really is the sort of, you know, you're kind of straddling lots of roles at once. And yes, mind you, you're not writing a full play, right. but still you're writing a dramaturgy. You're, you're writing pieces of text. You're Plus writing, you have to have a you know, whole arc of a journey that the right. audience has to go on. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And in a way, yeah. traditional circus or classical circus is, easier in the sense that it's just like act act act. Yeah. it doesn't have to be like of course you put you know a high energy act and then you put a low and and the acts i mean this is again like in in the the, the old way of doing things or still i mean some places still doing that is that the acts are self-contained like people right. create their acts you are your playwright yeah. of your act you are mm-hmm. your director and you you have your costume and your music i mean every it is a complete like right. uh key in hand uh and then the if it's a variety show a cabaret the director has to find the links and create a show order right. and you know anything and yeah the acts are just you know self-contained um and now i mean i think the way i mean we're not the only ones but the way we do shows is we're you know the acts are you know Mm -hmm. we are creating them as to to custom create them for the show so yeah it's a it's a lot of work but it's fun if someone gets injured do you have like so say for like passengers do you have backup people have learned the show uh no, so what we did with Pat, so for a long time, I didn't even want to talk about that because I got really superstitious. So when someone would get injured, yeah. we were just in crisis mode all the time. But um, <laughs> so finally with um, with passengers, I we kind of w- talked through all the contingencies. Okay, if this person's out, then you do this. Da, da, yeah. da. Um, so we everyone knew what all the plan Bs were, but most of them are like, if it's a, a few shows or whatever, and if it's something longer, we bring someone in because we can't sustain it. Right. Yeah. So we don't really have anyone trained because a quality circus person isn't going to be trained around. and sit around, right. um, which is like always the, the you know, the issue. Right. Um, but what happened, like for instance, now Sam was out for two months and, and we didn't have cradle and Paul replaces cradle. Like we have a version that we know mm-hmm. how to do it. We brought Pablo in who had been on cuisine, who's a, you know, a good mover and a good porter to do Sam's track. So he was there. So he now knows a lot of the choreography. Uh-huh. So he's someone. Sam if, is the juggler who does. No, the, Sam oh. is the, the cradle porter. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, wait, yeah. so it's not out? the same. Sam was, Sam was the porter who was out. And then Pablo, I met. 
Pablo, uh, you met. He, he was in cuisine. He and he, but he's not in the show. He's not in the show. Okay. He was in. So he did two months this spring. Okay. Because Sam was out, so he didn't do cradle. He's not a cradle porter, but he did his track because mm. quite often it's just you know. I mean, the other thing is like they have an issue with this show where if someone's out. There's not enough people to move chairs. Oh, like right. so there's oh, yeah. a simple thing of like the logistics of right. how to. I mean, like all of the props all, and stuff. You wouldn't think about it. But that's all choreography. It's all out. choreography yeah. and even setting up the rig and you know enough yeah. someone who can crank the ratchet while the other one you know so there's a lot of you know we really need an eighth body um but um like for instance what happened with traces was for a while we did so many traces we've done we did eight traces that enough people had done the show that when you say do we have people trained no we don't have people like trained and waiting and yet you call the one who's you know did it a year ago and said, right. can you come in and fill and in? And they is, already know. I saw yeah. it at New Vic first. Like, oh, yeah. I think I saw the first show oh, at New Vic when gosh. I saw it and I was oh. like 16 or 17. I said, that show, more than anybody, you know, we asked people yeah. like, what's that show that yeah. you saw that like changed your life? For sure, it was Traces. Yeah, it's so funny. But you guys started with like five people and then it went to seven. Yeah, right? like, and it went to seven actually because we had producers who, um, oh, uh, American producers. Yeah, uh, Amanda. Um, Amanda. Yeah, Amanda, 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 was, yeah. Yeah. Amanda and Tom Gabbard was great and they... I don't even know if it was they wanted to like boost it up or yeah. if it was more like the safekeeping of like if someone's out, you know, it just I mean, made you really picked yeah. five people who are like yeah. unreplaceable. Yeah, <laughs> I know. One person for those five. Well, and we did it was really interesting. So again, we didn't, I mean, we picked them in the sense they were our kids. Like I said, they yeah. were the four, you know, the, I mean, Eloise joined them at school because her and Will became a duo. And then her and Raph after were an actual couple. But, you know, so they became a five some at school. But, you know, we had, we brought them over. They, like I said, they lived in our house. And then, I don't think even when we brought them to Montreal, we were like, oh, yeah, because one day we're going to do a show with you. But then as they were graduating school, we realized, well, now they're graduating. Like, if anyone's going to do a show with them, we should because, yeah. we, you know, so it became our second show, which, um, you know, with Gypsy and I creating. And it was really having known them their whole lives, like knowing about the piano and the basketball and the skating and right. everything. And so it was very easy to kind of design a show. I mean, kind of like I was saying at Seven Mimi, when you when you know someone like yeah. the back of your hand to kind of from the start say, OK, this is how we're going to get the best out of them. And then thought no one else would ever be able to do the show, partly because the skills were so specific, but also. And it's crazy. But I, when we, we actually like eventually realized how to do like a Trace's boot camp where they'd get like they learned the piano songs they had to learn and the skate tricks they had learned. I mean, they wouldn't do 10 years of piano, but enough to kind of pull it off. It always right. helped if we had a few who were better musicians. Um and I was, I mean, I was surprised that so many people over the years, you know, were able to, to learn, to learn the show. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah. I want to respect that you had to fly yes, back yeah, to yeah. Montreal tonight. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we asked exactly. everybody the same three final questions. Okay. The first question is, has there been a piece of advice, really good or really terrible, that somebody has given with you that's stuck with you? Well, it's so funny. The one that stuck that for a long time was really it, it brought me to lots of wonderful things and yet I don't necessarily like follow it 100% but when I was in Cirque du Soleil Soubois Gerard Fazoli said to me never say no to work and it came up and actually it was because of Circus Flora um, that I was asked to go in and replace. And I think I was getting a little bit like, oh, it's traditional. Sir, I don't know what I was yeah. thinking. And he said, never say no to work. And I was like, okay. So I went and did it and I had such a great time, you know, and I realized there's a bazillion reasons that something is going to be worthwhile to you and the, the journeys you're going to go on. So I kind of took that and just really, I mean, it's like, you know, sort of the door opens, you walk through it. But I really felt like that was really, really valuable advice. And the other piece I would say that, that is more of a recent thing that my friend, my best friend, Isa said was, um, 
it's better to do something that one person is passionate about than something eight people just agree on. Mm. And that really applies, obviously, like working in a collective. And what I was saying earlier about if you're going to write the story, it's like someone needs mm. to care about it. And that's re- that helps because I think that w- this tendency also, especially if you're a people pleaser and you're working in a it's group. Yeah, like whether or not it's a collective or just a design team, you want to. Okay, and it just gets diffused because you're all kind of trying to meet in the middle and then there's kind of no concept out of it. And so the kind of the not the you know, not being scared to say like I really believe in this and shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Or you really believe in this, I'll shut up. So um so that also I think has been, you know, really helpful. Right. So second question. Yes. And uh you can't say seven fingers shows is the answer. Yeah, okay. Is there or your dad's book? (laughs) Is there a book or a movie or a show that you would recommend somebody who's a sixteen year old, eighteen year old trying to learn about circus check out or see? Oh. It also doesn't have to be a circus book or a circus show. I'm trying to remember because I feel like all the things that affected me were really dated. Like I saw one of the things that really influenced me the most was the Alvin Ailey dance piece episodes, which mm. actually Ulysses Dove choreographed. And that just completely changed like my work in the sense that it was all about it, his friend who died of AIDS and he wanted just two more minutes with him. Mm-hmm. So what if we lived our lives like, you know, so fully that we never wanted those two minutes at the end. So it just had this mm. like you know, living fully of the, and I feel like after that, all my work kind of like, I wanted that feeling of yeah. like, we have to live this moment a hundred percent and connect. And so that was really one, but like I said, that's kind of dated cause that was like early nineties. Um, and, uh, but, and that's not necessarily circus. Um, that's a great answer though yeah if you live in new york you can go to lincoln center's performing arts library and dig it up probably at the yeah probably yeah Yeah. and that you know there's other things that influence me like les volières dramasco but i don't know if there's any i mean that's the thing is that when i was getting influenced was like in the 90s like since then it's hard because i'm in it and so i don't have that same reaction to shows that are they're not like opening my eyes in the same way i'll think oh that's a good idea but it's not like you know so yeah um I mean, I have that with theater pieces sometimes, but God, right now I'm having a hard time. Like, no, that totally remembering. counts. That, okay, that's yeah. totally Super. legit. Okay, legit great, 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 okay, great, great. Yes. So our last question yes. is: uh, It also doesn't have to be just a mm-hmm. circus person, but do you have anyone in your head that you would suggest us talking to? Ah, okay. Oh gosh, lots of people. Um, Freya. Who is in Pesaje, yes. Australia? She girl. was so clean. Yeah, she's five months pregnant. My mom was like, <laughs> I was like, Mom, I don't know. That might just be your body. And my mom's like, She's pregnant. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. Oh, that's so. Yeah. Oh my God, so she's doing the two highs. She, and well, like... she used to do three high. So basically, oh. and it would bring the house down. So actually, I mean, oh it's understandable. Yeah. Yes. But um, but it's the the impact of of that number. It used to be that like it was at the end of that, there's a big group acrobatic yep. number towards the end, and she would bottom the three high and turn, and people would freak out. And now she's yeah. middling it, which is great. Right. But there's a lot of things. She's modifying the, the hula hoops. It's she's doing great, but like her waist has gotten so right. thick that she's having a much harder time when you splitting, know, the hoops. Yes. splitting the hoops. Um, <laughs> and her and Connor, the one who does pole, they're yeah. a married couple. Yeah, so. I read that they changed their last name. Yeah, thing. exactly. I became very yeah. obsessed with him, and yeah. I was like, I need to learn about yeah. him from this. So I mean, they. I don't know if you do duo duo yeah. podcast, but they would be interesting to have as yeah. a couple. And they're one. Of, it's like the rare every now and then. I mean, you know, we tend to hire a lot of young people out of school, and they, you know, you you learn something from everyone. But sometimes there are people where you really feel like you know I you know I'm learning a lot from this artist and how yeah. they work and that was really kind of working with them I, I feel like I really kind of got you know 
I learned a lot in the yeah. process, and that's rare. So that was really fun. Gosh. I wonder what it must yeah. be like to watch your pregnant wife on stage doing all these and spotting her. Yeah, like she's yeah. In, you know she's up in a too oh high, and I see him spotting her, and it's a different look than he had five months ago when he right. was spotting. Because you're like you are pregnant. <laughs> our, our, my baby, the, the lead of our show, Mari. She's mm-hmm. now they have a baby, but she mm-hmm. her last show that they did was she was six months pregnant, yeah. and they left her up, and I was like, are you sure you want? And they do a lift in the show. Yeah. and it's but it's nothing like doing a three high, you know. But it's, I mean, it has to do with what your body's used to, exactly. too. I mean, that's what she yeah. said. She's like, I'm yeah. just used to it. And like, yeah. I trust my cast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, that's, what a wonderful thing. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. Yeah, that would be cool. um, and, I'm, and if there's, and I, I, God, I feel like such a great opportunity. I want to think of someone else that would be great to talk to. Um, little, 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 um, gosh. Gosh, so I'll, I'll get back to you on yeah. it. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. So she was sitting. We'll put it in the little cliff notes with the show. Right, exactly. Yeah. Shana, thank you so much for talking thank to us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Time. Yeah, this was awesome. Was so great. interesting. Perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah, I could have kept talking for you know ever. And that was our interview with Shana Carroll. If you like our podcast, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, rate us on iTunes, Twitter, tweet us, or email us at hello at hideawaycircus.com. Our podcast is also available on Circus Talk, the international circus community's online resource and employment tool. If you are not a member yet, register and find your spotlight with Circus Talk today.